Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. Now, this episode is a bit of an experiment. As regular listeners will know, usually I interview one or two people from the wonderful world of education per episode who interest and inspire me. But this time, I'm going for over 40 of them. You see, this episode is called A Slice of Advice. And I best just say at this point, many thanks to my wife for that title. I have to give her credit in case she sues me. Now, on a slice of advice, I ask one question to lots of different people and compile all their answers together into one delightfully wisdom-packed offering. And given that I'm recording this podcast at the end of yet another busy academic year over here in sunny England, I thought a nice question would be, what have you learnt this year? So I gave each of my guests between one and five minutes and told them to interpret the question however they liked. And I tell you what, they did not disappoint. So you will hear a wide range of views and reflections from both past and future guests, from teachers, heads of department, heads, teachers and academics. There are familiar voices and those not so familiar. There are mathematicians and non-mathematicians, primary and secondary colleagues and a few surprises in there too. Now, just before we dive into this slice of advice, I am delighted to say that we have yet another podcast sponsor. So, with the aid of some jazzy music, let's hear from them. This episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast is kindly sponsored by White Rose Maths, who have just launched their revamped secondary maths schemes of work. So, what's new and why the change? Well, the schemes have been developed in response to feedback to White Rose Maths' first mastery schemes of work. As teachers themselves, White Rose colleagues have seen both the advantages and the pitfalls of a mastery approach and are keen to improve their schemes of work and make it work for all students. The schemes provide one curriculum that works for all, split into two strands. All students will study the same area of mathematics, which makes joint planning much easier, but higher attaining students will cover more maths earlier on, so that by the end of the five-year scheme, they've studied all of higher tier GCSE. The foundation strand will cover all material in foundation GCSE, so that by the end of year 11, all students can access at least a grade five. Calculator use will be built in from the very start, so maths teachers teach calculator skills and all students can access the new curriculum, and there'll be a strong emphasis on number as the basis of mathematical learning. But I'll tell you what my favourite bit is, and that's how White Rose Maths have incorporated interleaving. Now, interleaving is something that I'm absolutely obsessed with. Um, It's been a feature of the scheme of work that myself and my colleagues have, have been building for our school. And I'll tell you what, I think there's two things you've got to get right to make interleaving work. First is you need the order of topics to be correct. They've got to lend themselves nicely to being able to interleave prior topics that have been studied in a way that doesn't feel forced. So 
the classic ones, your, your studying area, you can bring in decimals, you can bring in fractions and so on and so forth. I love the order of the white, the new revamped White Rose Math Secretary Schemes of Work. But I'll tell you the other thing, and God almighty, we've discovered this when we're building our schemes of work. It's quite hard to find examples of, of really nice, appropriate interleaved questions and the kind of sources dotted around here there and everywhere and you can build them to build them yourself and write your own of course but i like the fact that white rose in their supporting materials have provided a really nice kind of base level of these high quality interleaved questions and um, if you've been following twitter recently you may have seen these because white rose maths have been tweeting them out and um, i've just picked out um, a couple that i particularly like so there's one here and i'll, I'll put this in the show notes Get your pen and paper ready for this one. The angles of a quadrilateral form a linear sequence with a constant difference of 20 degrees. Work out the sizes of the angles of the quadrilateral. And now in a little twist, show that the quadrilateral could be a trapezium, but cannot be a parallelogram. So what have we got involved there? Angle facts, properties of quadrilaterals, forming equations, solving equations, and then reasoning and communication at the end. And speaking of reasoning, white rows also have a range of reasoning questions. So again, another one I particularly liked here. Ready for this one? The hypotenuse of an isosceles right-angled triangle is 20 centimetres long. Calculate the area of the triangle. Okay, fairly standard so far. But then I like this. Repeat for a hypotenuse of 40 centimetres and other values of your choice. What do you notice? Can you generalise? And this goes back to John Mason's point that any maths lesson without generalisation isn't a maths lesson. So the full five-year overview and detailed guidance for the first half term of year seven are available now from whiterosemaths.com with lesson exemplars and other support to follow shortly. Much more to come from September, September onwards. And even though White Rose Maths are clearly from the wrong side of the Pennines, I strongly recommend you check those out. So there you go. I'll tell you what, I am loving these sponsor segments. And just a reminder, if you have a product, service, event or announcement and you want to reach thousands of engaged, informed, connected, intelligent, delightful and quite simply brilliant listeners, then drop me an email or a tweet to discuss sponsorship options. Okay, I will deprive you no longer. Now, as I say, this episode represents something of an experiment. I will be fascinated to know if you like it, and if you would like to hear more Slice of Advice episodes with lots of different guests sharing their responses to specific questions next year. Let me know on Twitter or email if you're up for that. But in the meantime, what did more than 40 of my favourite people learn this year? Well, there's only one way to find out. I really hope you enjoyed this one. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Hi, my name's Mia Arizu. I'm Vice Principal at Horizon Queen's College in Barnsley. You might also know me as at Chaos on Twitter. Um, the thing that I've learned this year is that I don't need Twitter. Um, that might be a controversial statement, considering that the number of Craig's followers are avid Twitter users. Um, but I've taken a real step back on Twitter over the last six months, um, and I've started to f- 
follow and 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 visit more websites that you might consider are the the quality filters for the information that we get through Twitter and the arguments that we get through Twitter and those sorts of things. So, um, you know, your p- perennial favourites like Joe Morgan's Resourceaholic, Craig's website, uh, Tom Sherrington. These are the people who are, you know, they, they, they dedicate themselves to getting and curating uh, information and ideas and resources um, that, and judging them for the quality, really, and, and, and finding out the ones that really will have an impact in terms of learning. So, um I'm not ashamed to say that. I'd, if you'd asked me this time last year if I'd ever switched off Twitter, I think probably the answer is no. Um, I do go on Twitter a little bit. I still do uh, direct message people and I will uh, pick out the odd bit of information, but it's very much a case of the tail no longer wagging the dog and I'm, I've, I'm fine that actually um, I've got less fear of missing out. Um, I can, As I say, I can think more strategically, um, but I'm still in touch with the people who I think, you know, make a difference in terms of education, in terms of teaching and learning, in terms of leadership in education. So um, whilst I'm not necessarily recommending that to everybody, um, because I know some people can, you know, manage the Twitter feeds quite well and they have various different lists and all those sorts of things, if you're finding that you are uh, overwhelmed by the amount of information you get through social media, then don't be afraid to take that step, step back and and really have a think about what it is that you want to get from services like Twitter and like Facebook and so on and whether they are serving your needs. Um, sounds kind of pessimistic, sounds kind of negative from what, where, where you might be listening, but actually um, I'm not saying don't use social media, uh, but what I am saying is that there's, there's there are people out there who you can kind of trust and rely on to, you know, get the information and, and curate that for you and, and, and also elaborate on arguments and, and make sure that what you're driving and what you decide to pick up on from Twitter and what you drive from there um, is, is clear and right and is coherent. So, um, yeah, that's the thing that I've learned this year. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that I won't go back to Twitter and start contributing a little bit more, uh, but what I will say is the last six months, I've, I've that step back is has really helped clarify my mind a little bit more and really pick out the things that I know make a biggest difference in um, my day-to-day role. Uh, Thank you very much. Hello, my name is Andrew Jeffrey. I am a maths consultant and on Twitter I am at AJ Magic Message, all one word. And uh, yeah, this year I think I've been really thinking about the danger of labels. Um, and sometimes they can be helpful, but other times they really can't. For example, I spent um, a good part of the last two or three years thinking about dyscalculia and trying to discover whether it was in fact a uh, the end of a spectrum of mathematical difficulties, the extreme lower end, or or whether it was an actual specific condition, and I kind of realised um, that that's the wrong question, and and the label itself is the most irrelevant part of <laughs> of this calculia really. Um, I had a, a BCME this year. I had a sort of a moment where I was sitting next to someone talking about blue hand syndrome. 
And uh, basically, it's where you go to the doctor with blue hands, and the doctor says you have blue syndrome, blue hand syndrome, and uh, you say what's blue hand syndrome, and the doctor says it's the name we give to a condition where you have blue hands. And I thought, yeah, this calculator is exactly like that. Um, I don't know which it is, but I've suddenly realised it doesn't matter. Um, the important thing is understanding uh, the symptoms and how we help. Uh, people who do have such a condition. And that's an uh, ongoing piece of interesting work for me. Uh, the other example I'll give is perhaps the word mastery. Now, um, as far as I can tell, the first person to publish on this was uh, Thomas Gusky in 1980, but I'm very happy to stand corrected. Uh, but I think it goes back further. For example, Albert Einstein said, if you cannot explain it uh, simply enough, you don't understand it clearly enough. And even further back than that, Aristotle said, uh, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, therefore, is a habit, not an act. And I love that. But then mastery suddenly, about six years ago, got a capital M and, and we all started worrying about what it was. Um, now, there's lots of things that are um, good practice, but they're not necessarily mastery. But in a sense, does it matter? Um, in a sense, uh, I, it's not whether it's done in Shanghai or uh, Singapore or, or Romford. You know, I don't care. It's uh, good teaching is good teaching and we continue to get better at it uh, with or without the labels. So, yeah, just a short uh, couple of minutes of, uh, of thoughts. I hope it's useful. Uh, keep up the great work, Mr. Barton. Uh, see you soon. My name's Andrew Percival, I'm Deputy Head of a Primary School in Oldham and on Twitter I am at Primary Percival. This year I've learned that all those hours spent marking books on a Sunday afternoon was probably just a big waste of time or to put it another way I've learned you don't actually need written feedback to help children make good progress in the learning. So this year at my school we decided to stop writing comments on pupils books instead we just look through the books now and we analyze them to find common errors that we can talk to the class about the next day and it's been an absolute revelation the more that i think about written feedback the more i realize it's a really inefficient way to help children improve the main point for me here is that it's really difficult to convey exactly what you want to say in a neat little sentence through written feedback. And if you want to really dig into why a piece of work is particularly good or not so good, then writing that down is really quite problematic. Um, it's really hard to give any sort of nuance to a written comment, so it tends to be very simplistic feedback with minimal guidance. Then if the recipient doesn't really understand what you mean and they get stuck, you just end up falling back onto verbal feedback anyway. Most of the time, when we looked at the sort of comments that teachers were making in their books, they were just variations on, this work would have been better if you'd done better work. And there's um, a great quote from Dylan William, which quoted in Carl Hendrick and Robin McPherson's book, which I will paraphrase now, it goes something like, teachers often focus on the purpose of feedback as improving work, but it should be about improving students' learning. Um, for me, that means we're often too worried about changing surface level features of a piece of work, but not really making the difference to whether errors are going to be repeated in the future. So we've been trialling giving whole class feedback at the start of lessons, and it means that we can spend a bit more time 
digging into the detail of the feedback and explaining the key points we want to get across. So then we can set children short tasks as part of the feedback that's more focused on them practicing something useful which will actually help them in future pieces of work and not just the sort of last piece of work that they did the previous day. Because we've been doing this, I've been thinking about all the other types of feedback and when you actually analyse what goes on in successful classrooms, you soon realise feedback is just going on all the time, all around. Some of that feedback is very obvious, like when a teacher responds with specific praise. So, well done Craig, that explanation was very clear because you did X, Y and Z. But there's a whole lot of subtle feedback going on, the smiles, looks, pauses, decisions teachers make in the spur of the moment, and all that's really useful feedback for pupils. When you look at all the possible feedback alternatives, you soon realise that written feedback is actually just a tiny part of all the possible feedback that you could give. But of course, it's the most time consuming method of feedback for most teachers. So we've been doing this for a year and the children haven't stopped learning. In fact, we've just had our Key Stage 2 test results. They're the best we've ever had. And there's really nothing now that we regret about moving away from a written marking approach. So to sum up, I suppose removing the requirement for written marking has just been a real liberation for teachers. They've got more time now to really think about the feedback they want to give, but uh, probably more importantly, the children are still learning and it's really anecdotal, but when we talk to teachers, when we look at pupils' work, when we see lessons around school, I actually think children's learning has been improved by removing written feedback. Hello, my name is Andrew. I'm a maths teacher and on Twitter, I am old Andrew UK. This year, I've learned what happens when you make classes work in silence. On the positive side, it makes it easier to monitor off task behavior and to set clear boundaries. It encourages students to settle quickly at the start of the lesson. It helps establish that all students are meant to listen and you don't ignore the teacher and then ask a friend what to do. On the negative side, it's hard work to enforce, particularly for large classes and where kids are not used to it. It does wind up the attention seekers. It does require planning so that for every activity, all students can always start the work immediately. I'm now considering how well it has worked and whether to continue with it. I've concluded that it's not the best strategy for all classes all the time on all types of work. I never tried it with A-level classes, only on weaker key stage three classes. However, in some situations, it worked really well. I do think that generally students don't do enough silent work. Uh, my name is Andrew Taylor. I'm head of the maths team at AQA, the exam board. And this year I've learned or perhaps been reacquainted with uh, something about the power of maths to enthrall, intrigue and engage us all. Uh, and there are a, a couple of 
really memorable occasions uh, for that. One was uh, listening to and seeing Ed Southall at the Beck Me Nine conference in Warwick over Easter. Uh, and some of the geometry problems that he presented were, were absolutely fascinating uh, and engaged me in an area of maths that I've always been a bit reticent about. And then more recently, uh, Robert Wilde at uh, an AQA expert panel meeting used Cuisinair rods, which are commonly used and thought of as being early years manipulatives, but he used them to, to demonstrate mathematics that went well beyond anything we teach in schools. Uh, and it, that just, I guess what I learned from that was that the structured use of sequencing from concrete to pictorial to abstract is, is an appropriate approach at all levels and at all ages. This year I've been uh, following debates around mathematics pedagogy with interest, uh, lots of discussion around direct instruction, inquiry, variation, use of rich problems, purposeful practice, intelligent practice, expectation, student discussion, uh, teacher-led discussion, how we use marking and feedback effectively. and. A lot of that discussion takes me back to the sort of basis for, for my approach to mathematics over 30 years, and that is the uh, Cockroft Report from 1982. And I was reminded of, of a lot of the wisdom that's, that's in that document, and I, I encourage anybody who hasn't read it to seek out a copy of that and, and to read it. Uh, one of the things that, that was said in Cockroft uh, around kind of procedure and practice and understanding was, was this. Well-mastered routines are necessary in order to free conscious attention as much as possible so that it can focus on aspects of a task which are novel or problematic. And that really resonates with some of the things I've been hearing on Twitter and at conferences this year. And of course, any mention of Cockroft uh, has to include uh, reminding us all of uh, the famous paragraph 243 which states mathematics teaching at all levels should include opportunities for exposition by the teacher, discussion between teacher and pupils and between pupils themselves, appropriate practical work, consolidation and practice of fundamental skills and routines, problem solving and investigational work. And I think that list is as relevant today as it was when it was written in 1982. But I guess what I've learned and where the debate has moved on recently is that it's not just that all those approaches are important in any maths classroom, but there is a real skill and a lot of thought happening now into how those different approaches are sequenced most effectively to give all learners a rich and successful experience of mathematics. And I think that's really exciting and it's one thing that's really struck me this year. Hi, my name's Andy Lutwich. I've been a secondary mathematics teacher for almost 20 years, and on Twitter I am at Andy Lutwich, spelt A-N-D-Y-L-U-T-W-Y-C-H-E. 
Now, whilst this may seem a particularly corny thing to say, I'd like to think I'm continually learning and improving, or at the very least experimenting with stuff so that I can learn and improve. And that's kind of... I I don't feel I've made it as a teacher. Um, I I feel there's plenty of room for improvement. Spotting and correcting errors seems to have worked nicely in my classroom this year to generate discussion, if nothing else. And this is taken directly from sample exam questions um, I've seen, whether in textbooks or what have you, online, um, various websites that you'll all know as well or better than me, probably. Whilst I've always been keen on class discussion, I've encouraged it far more this year and the students have hopefully developed um, their understanding as a result. It certainly seemed to create keener mathematicians, I have to say, uh, as everyone can contribute and is encouraged to do so. And I actually find mistakes create better opportunities for learning, but I realise I may be telling colleagues how to suck eggs at this point. Um, another area I've, uh, I've developed this year is activities with uh, a mix of questions, um, half-complete solutions where students must uh, find the question and complete the solution, and uh, ones where there's solutions and you've got to find the question, or students have got to find the question. All right, This came from an idea a colleague gave me, actually, on rearranging equations, um, and has developed into my explosions things um, where, yeah, you, you'll see them if you if you find them online. Um, but he did it originally with rearranging formula, and I just took it into other topics. Now, the whole idea behind these is to prevent students getting into a rut or going into autopilot. Um, and uh, and it actually, once again, it creates lots of discussion. You'll notice discussion's a bit of a theme this year. It sounds like I've got the noisiest classroom in the world. But there you go. I, I like discussion. I, I get a bit nervous when classrooms are quiet because I, I kind of wonder what's happening. Um, but there you go. Now, Craig's own SSDD resources have been uh, pretty inspirational for me. I think they're t- absolutely terrific idea, brilliant for starters and plenaries. But once again, they get starters go- um, get uh, discussions going during those starters and plenaries. So um, as a result of those, I thought, oh, hang on, why, why don't I do... Uh, what was the question? This is the answer. What was the question? So I've started doing those, and, and those have gone down really, really well with some really animated discussions and, and students literally um, debating how it should be done. And, oh, no, I think this... Absolutely brilliant to watch. And I, I, I personally find this really enlightening um, because uh, I'm, I'm obviously heavily influenced by my main math teacher from school um, who... Uh, who unfortunately died this year. He's a fantastic guy, but um, I, and he massively influenced me. Uh, but he he had literally one way of doing everything, and you learnt that. Now I, I I happened to embrace that, and he was he was fantastic. So did many others. But actually, when when students in my classes come up with their own ways of doing stuff, then that that's fantastic. And and very often they're better than the ways I I've been doing. So um, I I, I find that really enlightening and. And rewarding. Um, along similar lines, uh, producing resources uh, where um, there's potential answers on there, but more than the number of questions, so uh, students can't just guess right at the end. Um, I've been heavily encouraged by uh, my own department here. When I say my own department, is the department I work in, I should say, at school. Um, they, what, what this allows us to do uh, as teachers is is to not spend ages checking correct answers. It, um, because if if uh, if you go around and check every student's answers. Um, then that can take time away from addressing misconceptions with others. So 
those those uh, classes that do those sorts of um, uh, those sorts of resources where potential answers are listed. If their answer is not in the list, they know they've got to go back and check it. And actually, just so it's just a few seconds, but those few seconds add up and allows me to go and and uh, and. Um, and deal with uh, those kids who are really actually struggling and, and they will struggle I'd, every now and again um so there you go uh what else uh, if you're desperate enough to stumble across my resources online you'll know i like themes now the whole thing about themes is uh the the students recognize them and so uh what what we find is that uh if it's a, a concept or or a theme that they recognise, they're far more willing to have a go, um, and uh, because they because they they it automatically breeds a little bit of confidence. Um, and uh, and whereas if it's something totally new, then um, there, there's an air of uncertainty straight away. But obviously everything's new initially. But I, I, this is why I do themes, um, and uh, so stuff like diffuse the bomb, the mass explosions, the matchings, uh, what else? The spiders, uh, Erica's errors, you know, um, clumsy Clive and stuff. They're all themes that they recognise. And um, and there's crack the safe is a new one I've done this year, and I, I, li- I like to have lots of different things so that and I, and I use them uh, just just for a bit of variety as well. So while whilst it sounds slightly paradoxical, there there. There's, I have about well, sort of eight themes, I suppose, um, that I use regularly, but they're all themes that the students recognise. Um, now then, uh, something actually that I've used this year for the first time and that a colleague gave me it was teaching of upper and lower bounds using houses and fences. Absolutely. I, I, it's so obvious it, it makes sense, but it, it's a concept that I really struggled to put into words. And then... Um, a colleague of mine got more experience than me, so just show me this thing. Just uh, what number's that house? Well, what's the number before? What's the number afterwards? Where's the fence? And there you've got your upper and lower bounds. And it's, uh, the kids have loved it actually. And um, rather than me sort of bumbling my way through it like I used to, um, I, all I have to do is draw a couple of houses on there, and I go, "Oh yeah, right," and they get it, and it's uh, fantastic. So I'm indebted to my colleague um steve for that to be fair so there you go well done steve um, i'm sure he's pleased um the the last thing which may seem um slightly odd is uh that we've moved from squared paper in books to lined paper in books now this was taken from a conversation i had with colleagues on twitter around a year ago um i can't remember who I, i'm terribly sorry i'd love to be able to say thank you um in person but i really can't remember who it was um now it, they suggested that lime paper would make the students work neater. Now, I was dubious, but I thought, well, actually, we never, we never see lime paper in exams. Now, uh, sorry, we never see squared paper in exams. We only see lime paper. And so maybe, maybe they've got a point. So we try this year, and it works. Blow me, it actually works. So there you go. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, if we need to draw grids, I'll either provide the grids, which they would do in exams. They very rarely have to draw grids. Um, occasionally you have to label them. But if, if you want them to draw axes and grids and stuff like that, you can just have a ream of uh, squared paper. But there you go. I, that's roughly all I've got for you, I'm afraid. Um, and actually, you probably have plenty, uh, far too much from me, in fact, um, but ultimately, um, and I wrote this down, I'm, I wonder whether I really should read it out because it, it is a bit cheesy, but it does get the message across. You never know unless you have a go. And, and actually, when kids go, oh, I don't get it, I say, well, come on, you know, what, 
let let have a go just to even if it's wrong you, at least it's a step closer to being right um whereas if you if you just sit there with a blank page i'm going to struggle so um yeah like i say you never know unless you have a go and and actually most students surprise themselves which is fantastic seeing seeing the 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 look on their face when they suddenly realize oh actually i can do it is Becky Allen. I'm a professor of education at the UCL Institute of Education and on Twitter I'm Prof Becky Allen. Now education policy making is pretty faddish and it's clear that the revolution or fad in our times is the rediscovery of the subject disciplines. These are the ideas that the subject knowledge domains are built in very different ways in each subject that the curriculum should pay more attention to how they intend students to accumulate that subject knowledge, and that it's somewhat inevitable that subjects will develop distinctive pedagogical approaches to suit their knowledge domain. Now, when we prioritise the subject disciplines in our conversations, we implicitly uphold the idea that teacher subject knowledge, including pedagogical subject knowledge, matters a lot. But how much does it matter? For me, I'm increasingly obsessed with the trade-offs between having teachers who are subject experts and teachers who are experts in the students they teach. I think it's inevitably hard to be an expert in both. And there are now a couple of studies coming out of the United States that demonstrate the learning gains that can be made where teachers can become experts in their students, rather than teach the same subject repeatedly to a larger number of children who they inevitably know less well. I don't for a moment think that these studies suggest we've organised secondary schools suboptimally. I suspect the relative importance of knowing children well lessens as they get older. But I do think these studies have implications that we don't talk about enough. For example, how can it be optimal that our 10-year-olds have one teacher and our 11-year-olds have 10 teachers? Should science departments be using circus arrangements whereby the physics teacher teaches everyone physics but never gets to know their students well? Should primary schools think again about grouping students by moving them across classrooms and away from their regular teacher who knows them? And should secondary schools work harder to allow teachers to retain classes over multiple years, not just for exam classes? I don't know where these thoughts will lead me in the research I do, but I do think that thinking hard about what and who teachers know is a useful prism for making sense of how we want to organise schools. Hello, my name is Mr Gordon and I am Assistant Principal of Teaching and Learning for the Maths Department in a secondary school in sunny Blackpool and my Twitter feed is at Miss Maths Mr Gordon. There are six things that I have 
uh, learned about teaching and about myself this year to improve my practice is number one, making sure that I take the shortest path to learning. And what I mean by that is avoiding ambiguity in your explanations, making sure that you choose the correct modality for your instruction. So whether that would be verbal or visual or a demonstration. And also just making sure that you understand that it's absolutely okay to just tell children things. They don't have to discover it for themselves. At times that might be appropriate, but 90% of the time in my experience, it's much more efficient and better to use a direct instruction approach um, and just and just tell them. And then once the information is gathered, then they can start to do things and solve problems once that knowledge is secure. The second thing is, that remembering requires forgetting, which is sort of counterintuitive. So the most important thing in my practice that I've changed this year is introducing uh, either a weekly or next year it will be a fortnightly quiz, which encompasses all of the recent knowledge and procedures and concepts and connections that students have been learning about in that time. The quiz is split into the four R's, which is rapid recall, recent procedures, reasoning, and then a revision section. One week, they will do a quiz which encompasses all of the key things that we've learned that week or for that last fortnight. And then the following week, there will be a review lesson where teachers mark the quiz and elicit what has been understood and what needs more work and which students need moving on. And then the review lesson is planned based upon that um, information gathered from that quiz so that students are constantly gaining the support and being extended where possible. The third thing is learning and performance are not the same thing. So just because students can show you in the lesson that they can uh, carry out a certain procedure or explain a certain concept, that this is uh, continually changing over time and that we need to keep assessing that and coming back to it um, throughout a unit of work and, and planning for those things. So just because students understand it in the moment doesn't necessarily mean that they've learned it over time. And a good way of explaining this is describing it as as um, what Daniel Willing would call inflexible and flexible knowledge. So it's not about whether they understand it, yes or no. It's more about the nuanced understanding that they gain over time and how this changes becomes more flexible and they can do more things with that knowledge over time. The fourth thing is the importance of practice. We need to make sure that we provide more opportunities for students to practice in our lessons. Um, that needs to be done in controlled conditions and um, staff need to go around the room and make sure they are guiding that practice and supporting students so that eventually they can do this more independently. Um, and also the way that students practice as well. So I use minimally different questions so that connections can be made between those questions rather than just some random worksheet, uh, which I think is really important. It, it develops mathematical conversation during the lesson. Fourth thing is, big bugbear of mine, feedback is not the same as marking. So while in English and history and, and extending writing subjects, written comments might be the best way uh, to move students on in some cases because uh, feedback needs to be individualised depending on whether it's a creative writing um, piece of work, etc. In maths, I don't feel that that's appropriate. So making sure that staff are aware that we can use different forms of feedback, verbal, written, self-assessment is key. The best person to mark an exam is the person that just took it. Um, so yeah, 
feedback is not the same as written marking. And number five is making sure that we don't just judge the learning that is going on in the classroom or the performance that's going on in the classroom on our most confident students. So creating the conditions that allow us to gain as much information as possible so that we can respond to that in the correct way um, and either reteach explicitly what has not been understood or we can then move students on um, to reasoning and, and problem solving uh, questions. So that is my slice of advice this year. Um, the most effective thing that I have read this year to develop my understanding would be Rosenshine's Principles of Instruction, uh, Cognitive Load Theory by John Sweller, and um, What Does This Look Like in the Classroom by uh, Robin McPherson um, and Carl Hendrick. And obviously, Mr. Barton's book, How I Wish I'd Taught Maths. Thanks, everyone. Hi, Craig. Uh, my name is Ben Rooney. I am at Ben J. Rooney on Twitter. Um, this year, the catalogue of things that I have learned is probably longer than the new Brexit secretary's to-do list. I think the most important thing uh, that I've taken away from this year from your podcasts and conferences and the like and reading uh, is the really important role that retrieval practice plays. If we know, and we do, uh, that students are going to forget pretty much everything uh, that they learn within you know, a few days to a week to perhaps a little bit longer, then unless we actively step in to prevent that loss of knowledge, or to be more precise, the loss of access to the knowledge, um, then we're really not doing our job. So I think the most important thing I'm going to be doing and I've started to do is uh, greater emphasis on retrieval practice. And there are two things. One, which is a direct lift from your book, uh, is the weekly low stakes quiz. That's a Thing I'm going to introduce next year. One thing that I've already introduced this year was to change the way that I do homeworks. So homeworks are now, uh, rather than just being a, uh, a worksheet that where you're practicing one particular skill, uh, they're now structured uh, last week, last month, last year. The predominance is on the new skill, but students are then uh, uh, have to look at work that we did from the month before and indeed from, from the year before. Um, in terms of the, the, the best quote, or the most thought-provoking quote, was something that David Didow wrote very recently, which really did sort of catch me. And he said, uh, and he's absolutely right, uh, the goal of most children is not to be a successful adult, it's to be a successful child. And that has such a major implication on behaviour and on attitudes to learning in schools. And I think, to an extent, schools are able to control what it is to be a successful child. You can set the culture of what success looks like. Um, and I think that's something we should really be working at. In other words, we don't have to accept the status quo. Um, hope that helps. Hi, my name is Ben Sparks. I'm a mathematician and a maths teacher. I spend most of my time now doing lots of maths enrichment for students and professional development for teachers. On Twitter, I am at SparksMaths. 
this year I've been thinking about how uh, enrichment um, works well sometimes and doesn't work well sometimes and it's the same maybe for teaching particularly those times when you try and do a, a gimmicky moment in a lesson maybe you go outside maybe you bring a prop in uh, and you think it's been great and the kids will love it and then you ask them a few months later what they remember and they just remember oh that was the lesson we went outside or that was the lesson you had a prop in it and they don't remember the actual maths very frustrating but it made me think about what, what makes uh, good enrichment different from that good lessons perhaps are the same and I think uh, the one thing I'm trying to give myself as advice now is that if you ever come across a piece of maths which makes you ask the question, wait, could we actually do that? Then your job maybe is to at least consider whether you could actually do that. Um, two examples. Um, there's a famous piece of maths called the birthday paradox. I'm sure you've come across it. Um, it's not really a paradox. The birthday problem is also goes by the name there. Look it up. It's a classic probability question about the probability of two people sharing a birthday. And it turns out you only need 23 people in a room before it's more than likely than not that two people will share a birthday. And I saw so many people present this truly amazing probability fact. And the kids just went, so what? And so the question becomes, well, how do you make that obviously amazing? Uh, and then I started reflecting, well, if I believe it to be true, then I should probably uh, believe it enough to put some money on it. And then I investigated that the probability goes up really, really quickly after 23 people as well. And so we decided in Mass Inspiration Shows to actually put a large amount of money on this bet. So we bet that in a group of 60 people, there are going to be two people that show a birthday. Uh, and we put 50 quid on it. And the audience genuinely have to gamble against us, but they only have to put a pound on. And suddenly the, uh, the tension shoots up. Um, and I get sweaty as well because I've done, do I trust this maths? I've only lost it once. I've won it many times, the bet. Uh, but the, the whole point is that it suddenly feels a bit more real. Another good example might be uh, uh, a colleague of mine, Katie Steckles, put this into action. There's a joke about an infinite number of mathematicians walking into a pub. First one orders a pint. Second one orders half a pint. Third one orders a quarter of a pint. Uh, and so on. And the barman just sighs and says, uh, he pours two pints, and then he says, know your limits. Now, as a joke, it's... Uh, it's a mathematical kind of level of funny, but uh, the story of the infinite series of one plus a half plus a quarter plus an eighth and so on is summing to two is, is a nice little mathematical fact. Um, and what Katie decided to do in a presentation is actually do it as much as she could. So she pulled out a pint glass full of beer uh, and then uh, a second pint glass, which was empty, and proceeded to pull out lots of fractions of pints. So she poured a half pint into this empty pint glass and then a quarter pint she'd measured out and then an eighth of a pint and then a sixteenth of a pint. And she'd, she'd done all the weighing of these amounts of beer. She had them all lined up and poured them all one by one into the second pint glass. And it was obvious it was getting fuller and fuller and fuller, but it was beginning to become increasingly obvious that it was never actually going to overflow. And it wasn't like the outcome was unexpected, but the physicality of actually seeing it done with beer in this context... Uh, made it into a very memorable thing and it's almost impossible to forget the maths behind these things when the context is so obvious like that. So instead of, I've, my advice to myself is instead of finding gimmicky ways of presenting stuff, find the sort of the genuine mathematical gimmick uh, that it's not a sort of tacked on thing but is doing the maths actually in context and is the response to the question, wait, can we actually do this? And if it is at all, well, maybe we could try, then my suggestion to myself is, well, let's try. <laughs> My name is Chris McGrain, I'm the Head of Maths in a secondary school in Glasgow. 
On Twitter, I am chrismcgrain84. This year, I've been looking at some of the research which inspired the development of the idea of mastery learning. An interesting paper that I've come across is John B. Carroll's Model of School Learning from 1963. Carroll states that the degree to which we can expect something to be learned is a complex relationship which is governed overall by the time actually spent learning and the time needed to learn. Time spent learning is governed by two factors. One, the time which is allowed in class for the completion of the learning. And two, the perseverance of the student. The time the student is willing to spend actively engaged on the learning. Carol talked about several features uh, which impact upon the time needed. The first of which is aptitude. And that's the amount of time required to learn given optimal conditions. It's not an index of the level a student is capable of learning to. It's the amount of time required to learn to a required level. Individuals have different aptitudes for different subjects and even different aptitudes for topics within the one subject. The next factor is the quality of instruction. And here's an excellent quote for this. The quality of instruction can be defined as the degree to which the presentation, explanation and ordering of the learning tasks elements approached the optimal for each learner. Further, having read a little bit more on, he then talks about the idea that how well the teacher observes and monitors the long-term progress of individual students or provides proper feedback and remediation is what quality instruction comes down to. He is a big advocate of the idea that observation of a lesson or even several separate observations probably won't tell us this or show us this. The final factor impacting upon the time needed is the student's ability to understand the instruction. This is not the same as aptitude. This is the student's ability to profit from the instruction. This may depend upon their prior learning. Overall, verbal intelligence is thought to be very important here in our classrooms. Pupils with additional support needs in English as an additional language, for instance, these needs impact upon the ability to profit to understand the instruction. All of these factors influencing the time needed can be collectively called the rate of learning. Individual students have different rates of learning. The other thing is these rates of learning are not static. Any number of variables interact in a complex relationship to govern this. Academic factors such as previous learning are important, but one always must remember that we're talking about human beings here. The weather, are they hungry, fatigue, emotional state, friendships, all of that has an impact on a day-to-day basis upon the rate of learning. However, over the long term and over many numbers of learning tasks, the rate of learning is constant, and it's a guy called Suppis in 1964 who talked a bit about that. All of this idea of this rate of learning then gave rise to the, what Benjamin Bloom talked about in 1968 when he talked about mastery. If students were normally distributed with respect to aptitude for a subject and they were given uniform instruction, then achievement would be normally distributed. However, if students receive optimal quality of instruction and the required learning time, then a majority would be expected to attain mastery.
Mark McCourt was recently asked on Twitter about research for raising attainment in mathematics, and sure enough, Carol's name was listed. It's not very often I read a piece of research which speaks to me so much, which confirms what I've always sort of felt in you inside, which correlates with my own classroom experience, but this really did. I would encourage anyone, whether you're employing a mastery curriculum or not, to engage with some of Carol's work and to have a proper read on it. Hello, my name is Christian Bockhover and I'm an Associate Professor in Mathematics Education at the University of Southampton. On Twitter people will know me as C. Bockhover. And this year I've learned a few things. Firstly, that cycling is lovely but dangerous in England. Secondly, that I'm still not writing a book. And finally, and probably the most important thing, is that we commentators on the UK education system have much more in common than we think. Differences might sometimes be magnified too much. Speaking from the perspective of academia, plenty of academics, just like me, are willing to work with schools. Plenty of teachers also would like to work with researchers. I've been into several schools and I think it is extremely useful for me and for everyone involved. But we just need to talk to each other in person. We just need to start up uh, the communication. And even if it turns out hard to eventually organize something because we have to prioritize other things, I think talking to each other, at least we might build some mutual understanding. Understanding that honors multiple views, multiple research approaches. We can have the randomized trials, but we can also have more qualitatively oriented studies as well. And then triangulate from different sources so we basically try to find out more and more about uh, effective uh, ways uh, to do education. Yes, I'll gladly discuss these things with you too, and I am sure there are plenty of other academics who would love this as well. So why not get in touch? Don't worry, I promise this time I won't bite. My name is Claire Seeley. I'm a head teacher of a primary school in Tower Hamlets. Uh, on Twitter, I am at Claire Seeley and I blog as Primary Timery. This year, I have learned about prototype theory. I learned about this uh, thanks to Oliver Caviglioli when I was a, a researcher at Durrington and he did a session on meaning and memory. Now, I write about memory anyway, um, and I'm quite fascinated about uh, knowledge and understanding and how they're sort of the same thing, but not quite the same thing. And if you say knowledge is the same as understanding, gets people very, very rate and uh, wanting to say, no, it's not, no, it's not, and going on and on about rote learning and how understanding is different. Um, and that's sort of the territory that Oliver was talking about. And what he, uh, what he explained is that knowledge is understanding, but the way that knowledge is organised in the brain 
is what makes it better or less well understood. So if you want to understand something, it needs to be well organised. Uh, the way prototypes come into this, um, and this is uh, via somebody called Eleanor Roche, and she wrote about uh, prototypes and how we have prototype ideas of what is a prototype of something. For example, a bird. Um, when you think of birds, uh, the prototypical bird is something more like a robin than a penguin. Like a penguin is less birdish uh, than a prototypical bird like a robin, for example. So a penguin is still a bird, but it's, it, because it shares less of the prototypical features of a bird, it doesn't fly, for example, um, Therefore, it's, it's less prototypically bird. Now, that got me thinking about uh, science and our science curriculum. And when the new uh, national curriculum came out for primary schools and for science in particular, I was really perplexed about how it went on and on about the same things over and over and over again. And plants came up again and again and again. And I thought, how boring and repetitive and pointless. Suddenly, a bit of a penny drop moment for me. I realised, oh, no, now I get it. It's wanting to expand uh, pupils' knowledge of the range of different types of things that can be a plant. So pupils might have a quite limited, restricted, prototypical view of, um, say, a leaf as you know, a basic deciduous tree leaf, flat thing. Um, and actually, part of our role is to give them lots of different examples of leaves over the years, so that they realise that, you know, a cactus has a leaf or a coniferous tree has a leaf or roots aren't just those sort of normal roots we think of, prototypical roots, but, you know, a carrot is a root. And expanding that so that when they later go on to do um, adaptation, it all makes a lot more sense because they already know there's a wide range of different types of leaf or root or bird or whatever, rather than just being stuck to a narrowly prototypical view. Um, it, Oliver also talked about um, Piaget, Piaget's theory of uh, how we learn things and about um, assimilation and accommodation. And assimilation is when we can easily um, learn something. It easily fits in because when we learn, we, it, it fits into what we already know. Uh, so when we assimilate something, it just fits in easily. It's not a lot of mental rearrangement needs to go on. But when we need to accommodate, the idea is so very different that a lot of um, reorganisation of what we know and change of what we already know has to take place. And uh, it's typical to want to resist that um, and just try and jam it into the old way of doing things, shoehorn it in anyway, which is why we get misconceptions. And so with things like fractions, the reason why that's a problem for kids is they try and assimilate it into their understanding of natural numbers rather than realising you know, these are rational numbers, they can't just fit in, you're going to have to change what you think and uh, accept that not all numbers are natural numbers and some numbers just work very, very differently. And uh, such kind of accommodation is, is resisted and that's why things like that are so resistant to, uh, to instruction. So that was really interesting. Thanks, Oliver. Prototypical theory, great stuff. My name is Colin Foster 
I'm an associate professor in the School of Education at the University of Leicester and on Twitter I'm Colin Foster 77. Um, I've been thinking quite a lot recently about how to help students get better at solving mathematical problems of various kinds. There's been quite a strong emphasis in a lot of the things that I've read um, and also things I've heard on the podcast about the importance of prior knowledge in making a huge difference between student being able to solve a problem or not solve a problem. Um, and I think students won't get much out of attempting to solve a problem unless they've already got quite some way towards being fluent with the facts, procedures and concepts that they're going to need. So um, I think I've got no doubt that content knowledge is vital. Um, but I think content knowledge is necessary but not sufficient. And I've been struggling to think a bit about what, what the extra bit is that's needed. Um, I'm sure we've all had that frustration of watching students struggling to solve a problem. Um, and you're standing there feeling that you're absolutely sure that the student knows all the necessary techniques to solve the problem. Um, in some sense, they know those processes. Um, for example, maybe they can solve a quadratic equation or something. You, you've seen them do pages and pages of it. But then when you give them a problem to solve that to you is basically just a quadratic equation in disguise, um, embedded in some scenario or a word problem or something, um, the student seems to have no idea what to do. Um, and you think maybe if you ask them to solve this problem in a lesson on quadratics, they would be thinking quadratics and they would just do it. But when you give it to them cold, out of the blue, with no clues, they seem to have no idea what to do. So the question for me is, why does that happen? They seemingly got the content knowledge, but they don't make effective use of it to solve a problem. And that says to me that knowing content is necessary but not sufficient, meaning that we also need to spend time helping students with things like locating and utilising the appropriate content that they already know. I think that doesn't happen automatically. It needs teaching. Um, you can have the most um, well-equipped toolbox of mathematical techniques um, all set, ready to go. But if you don't have any idea of how to select a suitable tool for a particular job, then it's not much use to you. Um, I remember um, years ago watching science students when, when you had those long formula books, scanning down lists of formulae, desperately looking for a formula containing the letters that maybe match the first letters of some of the quantities in the question, hoping to find something they could substitute the numbers into. Um, so there's lots, lots of content, if you like, but no sense of what it means or what might be useful or relevant. And so sometimes I think the problem is that content knowledge isn't known deeply enough or with strong enough connections to other things. Students aren't really aware of the wide potential of the techniques that they've learnt. They've maybe only met the content in a very narrow range of very similar situations. Um, so they don't see how to transfer it to a novel problem. Um, if it's content that they've only just learnt, maybe, then it perhaps hasn't had time to bed down into things that will come to mind spontaneously. Um, a bit like when you learn a language, the vocabulary that you've just learnt, you won't be able to use fluently in conversation. It's the words you learnt some time ago and that you've got fluent with um, that you're then able to bring into your conversational speech. So I think my suggestion is that when the problem-solving demands are high, the content demands must be correspondingly lower. And there must be things that the students have already securely um, embedded. At the Shell Centre in Nottingham, we used to suggest that problem-solving lessons draw on content that was taught up to two years previously. Students can't effectively problem-solve on things that they've just learned.
Hello, my name is Damien Benny. I'm a deputy head teacher and most importantly a science teacher. And on Twitter I am at Benny Penarail. And this year I've learned, well, loads actually. I've just completed my, or nearly completed my 19th year of teaching and probably other than my first year, I've learned more this year, I think, than any other year. Um, I'd like to just focus on one book I read um, in the early part of uh, 2018. Uh, a little book called um, How I Wish I'd Taught Maths by uh, Craig Barton. Uh, flip an egg, right? It is it is really good and I'd recommend it to anyone and everybody. Just a, a little bit of background. I've listened to lots of Craig's uh, podcasts. Not all of them. I'm still trying to get through uh, his back catalogue. But when you listen to the podcasts with the likes of uh, Dylan William, uh, the Bjorks, Daisy Christoulou, when you listen to those, you know that, it, that those are going to inform his book and, and his book then is obviously going to be well worth uh, worth a read and it certainly is now i'm not a maths teacher though i have taught uh, a little bit of year nine maths in the past um first and foremost i am a science teacher and i was very interested to see what, what i could learn from the book in terms of obviously sort of feeding back to my maths department and sharing the book with my maths department but what i could learn uh, as a science teacher now the book has uh, got a lot on desirable difficulties and i would say without question over the last few years introducing desirable difficulties um, into my work as a teacher has been the most important thing I've done. But I was really interested to see what particular maths pedagogy that I could incorporate into my science teaching. And, um, you know, here are just um, a few examples. So this year I've been really keen on implementing working uh, like example problem pairs. So whether it's teaching density or half-life or ionic bonding or covalent bonding, I'd split my board and I'd also give it worksheets sort of split in half with me with doing a worked example on the left and then the pupils doing, um, you know, their particular problem on the right. I'd also uh, combine that with silent teacher. So the first time I, I talk them through maybe a bit of ionic bonding or calculating half-life, I would do it in absolute silence. Then I would delete the board and I would redo it, but this time narrating my thought processes. So the silent teacher makes sure, make, make sure that they're not becoming cognitively overloaded. Um, and then I can really explain my sort of metacognition as I work through. And then obviously then they go on to, to work on their particular problem. Really, really like the bit on self-explanation. So I've, I've sort of incorporated supercharged work examples where there's a little section in the middle between um, my worked example and their problem where they can you know, reflect on things. So if they're doing covalent bonding, once they've done their bit of work, they can reflect on why it is covalent bonding, what they've done and, and why, and maybe how it's different to ionic bonding. So I thought the, the worked examples and the supercharged work examples have been just a, a great addition to my teaching armory this year. Also, I've really uh, looked into using boundary examples, which are sort of extreme types uh, of, 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 ex of maybe exam questions that pupils could have. So when we were looking at ionic bonding, as well as sort of giving pupils, talking through pupils how to do the sort of standard ones of sodium chloride, when there's one sodium atom and one chloride, uh, chlorine atom, obviously becoming ions and then bonding. Same with magnesium oxide. Also looked at the sort of boundary examples that pupils could have. So lithium oxide, when there's two atoms of lithium to, to one atom of oxygen, um, you know, just exposing pupils to those means that if they do come up in an exam, they're going to be more comfortable with them, that they're just the more difficult examples, but they can certainly do them. So making sure that I give examples of those and also give pupils those to work on was really, really useful. Possibly the the, the two that, I, that I've got the most out of, though, is, is the minimally different examples. Um, so, for instance, in year nine, teaching speed uh, equals distance over time. In previous years, in fact, for all my 18 previous years as a teacher, you know, we teach them the equation and then we just give them a load of examples with randomly selected numbers, which have got no bearing on each other. And pupils plug them into the calculators and, you know, as long as they follow the equation right, they get it right. 
but really, really thinking about how we can use minimally different examples so they have a better understanding of what speed actually means. Exactly the same with density. So, for instance, again, it, it, it's not just teaching, you know, formula triangles, which I hate. You're teaching the equation. But by using minimally different examples, you, you can actually get people to have a better understanding of what speed actually means and how if the distance doubles, but the time stays the same, what impact that has on speed. Or if you're looking at density, two objects have the same mass, but one object has uh, double the volume of the other, what effect that has on density. And, you know, I think in terms of pupil outcomes, if, if, they, if they can learn a formula triangle and put the right numbers in the calculator, they probably get it just as right as the, the pupils who... You know who've done the minimally different examples but in terms of just understanding the concept and of taking that forward into into life and and, and maybe a levels the, the pupils who are going to do the minimally different examples are going to have a far far better understanding of what density actually is uh you know the, the sort of mass for a, a unit of volume as opposed to just you know oh this is density there's the formula triangle plug the numbers in and, and job done so minimally different examples have been a bit of an eye-opener this year actually because i've never even considered using them Hey, what's up, Craig Barton listeners, uh, the Bartonettes, as I call you in my head. This is Dan Meyer, a.k.a. at DD Meyer on Twitter, a.k.a. head of math teaching at Desmos. I spend most of my time trying to figure out why certain experiences with computers in math class are so dull and others so enlivening and enriching of mathematics and students and teachers. And I'm, I'm coming to an evolving sense of an answer, which is to say um, that answer is for me that the devices that we use in classes are so have unique capacities and our math experiences we offer on them should take advantage of those capacities. Uh, namely, that these devices are social and creative like few we've seen before. I can create such interesting artifacts of my thinking on these devices. This audio clip, for instance, a tweet, an essay, photos, videos, whatever. I'm creative and also they're social. I can share those with many more people than I ever could before. And um, those, those actions, that, that creativity and that, that social connection, those aren't just like nice to haves or um, orthogonal to the learning process. Those are so fundamental to so many learning processes. Like I, I learn so much when I put a tweet out there. I, I encounter the limitations of my knowledge so quickly when people uh, write in and tell me what, I, what I, I'm missing or have reduced. And uh, I encounter the limits of my ability to articulate my thinking as well. What seems so clear to me is all of a sudden obviously not so clear to other people. And uh, those are that's so valuable. And yet our experiences with computers and math classes take advantage rarely take advantage of that those creative and social capacities like what, what do you create with computers and math class you create multiple choice responses uh, type numbers into blanks maybe and, and what's the social experience like um, oftentimes you're you have headphones in and you're watching a video of an instructor or perhaps you are sharing your multiple choice responses but you're sharing them not with the other students or the teacher um, you're sharing them with an algorithm for a grade if that and so that those that, that to me is not definitive. This this idea that social and creative experiences are what students need to have a productive and interesting math experience. But it's, it's what I'm learning this year. It's what I'm um, slowly arriving at as being a, a dividing line. So next year, I'm hoping to um, develop more experiences using this framework and also to test out, like, are these hypotheses correct or not? That is what I have been learning this last year. Looking forward to hearing what you folks have learned as well. Hi, I'm Dan Piercy. I'm the head of maths at Gentle Academy in Switzerland. And on Twitter, 
I'm at Daniel Piercy. One thing I've learned this year is that we often think of different approaches, the big ones being inquiry and explicit instruction, I guess, as being completely separate, which is absolutely to our individual and collective detriment, I think. I read Hans Rosling's book a few months ago, and in the book he described this phenomena as the gap instinct. So I've got a direct quotation, I've written it down right here. Um, He says, the gap instinct is that irresistible temptation we have to divide all kinds of things into two distinct and often conflicting groups. (laughs) And when I I read that, I couldn't help thinking of this gap that we've created between inquiry and explicit instruction. So what I've tried to do this year is think more openly about how different approaches can intertwine. And I was really lucky to invite Chris Bolton and Andrew Blair to our Swiss Maths conference. It was basically clear from the word go that discovery was a key part of Chris's view of explicit instruction. To be fair, it was teacher-led, but then I guess I guess some people's view of explicit instruction doesn't always feature discovery. So it's really important that he highlighted that point. But then on the flip side, um, explicit instruction was sometimes necessary in Andrew's view of inquiry. So even though these approaches um, at their base are clearly very different, um, they are mutually exclusive, as, as I think we all know, and I'm really interested in how we capitalise on that. So I'll give an example from, from this year, which is basically utilising student questions more effectively in explicit instruction. After, after, say, three to four lessons of a new topic, I asked students to write down at least one question they had about the topic. And the reason I asked them to do it after a few lessons is because I think the questions are deeper and much more much more well-defined than if you ask the students to do it at the start of the topic. And as you can probably imagine, um, I found that most student questions were based on concepts that we'd be coming onto at some point in the curriculum anyway. So, um, so it's just basically been massively exciting for me and the students because it allowed the students to feel like they were taking ownership of the curriculum when they saw their question as a title or a subtitle to a future lesson. And I didn't even have to base my curriculum on student questions. They just fit seamlessly into what I'd already planned. It, it isn't groundbreaking, um, but it's really easy to do, and it begins to intertwine features of different approaches. So uh, to sum up, um, instead of pigeonholing myself into any one camp, I found it really refreshing when, essentially when collaborating, when talking to different people, instead of just enga- disengaging from ideas that don't fit into my current mindset, I've tried to think about how they can be intertwined or modified to develop, um, I guess, like a mixed methods pedagogy. Hi, my name is Dan rodriguez Clark, and I'm a maths teacher and the Teaching and Learning Coordinator at an international school in Lima, Peru. On Twitter, I'm at InteractMaths, and I blog at interactive-maths.com. I want to share three things I've learned with you this year. First, working memory is limited. I think this is such an important idea. I've been dealing with this by using example problem pairs, where I present one example, and then ask students to complete a very similar example straight afterwards. Secondly, I think the testing effect is one of the most underused ideas from cognitive science. This year I started using weekly quizzes 
and the students have found these really useful. I've found them really useful. And over the last six months or so, I've really noticed that they're picking up and remembering things that previously they just weren't. Every week I do one of these. I cover topics from the previous week, but also from all the other topics that they've studied over the last year, two years, depending on the age group. But I think the most important thing that I've learned over the last year is one teacher said to me something along the lines of, as teachers, our own children often get left behind or get less attention because we're focusing so much on our students. Well, this year I became a father and that really resonated with me. And I've really been trying hard to prioritize family over work as much as I can. So whereas I used to stay at school until five o'clock or six o'clock some days, now I'm really trying to get out of work and get home to spend some time with my family. Obviously I'm still doing the work, I'm doing the work in the evenings, but actually taking the time, making myself go home and spend it with my family. And I think that is one of the most important things I've learned this year, that work is important, but there are more important things in life. My name is Danny Quinn. I'm the head of maths at Michaela Community School in Wembley. Uh, there are three main things I'd say I've learned this year. First of all would be in maths teaching, where I'd say I've realised you should use equations as much as possible as a structure for questions. For example, currency and distance conversions are easier to do if they have it as a, an equation. For example, one mile equals 1.6 kilometres. Well, in that case, maybe a ratio or approximately equals, and it's easier to move from there. Or currency conversion, if you actually manipulated as an equation rather trying to anticipate whether or not you're going to multiply things. Uh, percentage change in original amounts is easy to identify. We have 30% equal to, say, six pounds. I want to find 100%. How will I get to that next bit of the equation? Even works better trying to find a missing length on a perimeter if they set up an equation. The sooner they can see problems as having one thing equals another thing and I'm trying to get to a final thing, the sooner they have a reliable structure to work with and the pupils won't get muddled by proportionality. The second thing I've learned about this year is with revision, uh, which is something we're always trying to improve on. But one thing I've really, I've always known, but become more aware of this year is you have to have a record of what you're taught and what they've co or what they've covered in the past, and a system to check you're regularly reviewing it. I really found this year the end of year exams didn't tell me so much about what they could or couldn't do or what they had or hadn't done, but what I'd neglected to revise for the course of the year, having taught it early in the year and not properly revised it. It told me what I'd neglected rather than what the children had neglected. Lastly, with managing or leading in a department, a book that really made a difference for me this year is the book Fierce Conversations. It had a lot of useful things in it to think about. One was that the, it has a different name, but the turd sandwich can unwittingly give a message that good news or positive feedback only exists to soften the blow of negative feedback rather than having value in its own right. It also gives a message that you're afraid to give the negative feedback or you think the person isn't strong enough to receive it. The other thing I've learned from the book, which has really been difficult for me to do, is that to you should still initiate a difficult conversation or a fierce conversation, as she calls it, being American, even when you aren't certain what the solution is. I don't mind difficult conversations personally if I know what someone could do or should do instead, or I can paint a clear picture and help them get there and feel hopeful. But of course, lots of things in teaching, especially classroom persona, are nebulous. And they're hard to pin down. It's hard to say what's wrong. You can sometimes just feel that things aren't quite right. 
But if you don't bring the issue out in the open, it can't be resolved. If you start the conversation, you can find a solution together, even if you couldn't see the path on your own. So it's to trust people, not only with difficult or non-positive feedback, that you should trust them even if you can't tell them what it is they could do. You could trust them that they want to know anyway and they want to find a solution with you. Have a really good year next year. Thank you. Hello, my name is Danielle Musaji. I'm a lead practitioner and on Twitter I am Pixie Maths. This year I've attended more conferences than any year previously and I've learned so much, particularly that it's quite easy to get stuck in a rut. Um, This has been quite a difficult year for me, quite a challenging year and I've just relied on the same resources that I've used in years previously with other classes. These conferences have shown me that there are so many other amazing things out there that I could be using. Uh, Craig Barton, recently at MathsConf 15, said that variation is just part of a diet of maths. And I think that applies to all of the stuff that that is available to us right now. Variation is definitely something that I've been using uh, more in my lessons, something I'm looking to embed um, as, as just part of how I teach any topic, both conceptual variation and procedural variation. Slop is something that Joe Morgan spoke about as well, shed loads of practice. I think it's it's quite easy to just teach a topic with a few questions and think, yeah, the students can do that and move on. Whereas actually we need to make sure that they, they are really, really secure with, with those topics. Problem solving, rich tasks, exam questions, modeling. There's so much stuff out there that we can be using to meet this, this rich diet of maths. Uh, and for me, this year has been about working out where those resources are and where they best fit in for my style of teaching. So I suppose the hardest part really is working out what to use when. But my key message here is get out to those conferences, those teach meets, whatever else. Read the books. Uh, If you haven't read Mr. Barton's book, it's great. Ed Southerl's book, Yes, But Why, it's great. Mr. Mattock's got one coming out. Gemma Sherwood's got one coming out. There are so many amazing, valuable CPD things out there use them, make the most of them. Hi, my name's Danny Brown. I'm a maths teacher and on Twitter I am at Danny Ty Brown. This year I've been learning the importance of tasks and activity that encourage learners to use a high level of initiative. To initiate is to begin something, to create. For me, creativity is an essential part of learning and doing mathematics. I'm not talking here about making stuff, but rather providing opportunities for learners to participate in the creation of mathematically meaningful experience. Such opportunities can be provided in a variety of ways, including learners generating their own questions or versions of questions, or creating the examples that will form their notes. I've invited learners to generate examples numerous times throughout my career and often abandoned it after one or two attempts with a group, not finding it a very efficient way of learning. I felt it must be efficient in theory, but I never seemed to be able to make it work consistently in practice. Anne Watson and John Mason's book, Mathematics as a Constructive Activity, helped me realise how to structure such activity and this year, in my 14th year of teaching, 
I feel I'm finally managing to incorporate these ideas into my teaching repertoire in an effective way. I think this is due in part to a renewed commitment to working in this way and also an increasing realisation of the power of creativity both in me and in the learners I was teaching over the year. This year, I taught a class of 8 to 11 year olds. At the beginning, this group didn't respond particularly enthusiastically to some of the mathematical tasks I offered, particularly those with lots of written examples that I had generated. I learned that these children responded more enthusiastically when I shifted the generation of the mathematics from me onto them. This is not to say we worked on any old thing. It was about finding structures, often afforded by the materials we worked with, within which the children could be creative. It was about setting up situations in which the children had to make decisions, sometimes about the mathematics they would do, and sometimes about how they would do it. This group of children loved the opportunity to ask and answer their own and each other's questions. They loved it when authority was subverted, whether that was using the whiteboard or when deciding whether a certain quadrilateral was in fact a quadrilateral. There was much energy generated when they gained control of the whiteboard or got to work with other media such as video. They really enjoyed making the materials with which they would do mathematics, for example building their own geoboards. If this all sounds a bit woolly, I must stress that we were all always working with purpose on mathematics from the curriculum, such as working on place value in different bases, geometric classification, equivalence of fractions and decimals and so on. You can see the quality of the mathematics they produced at my blog, squeaktime.com. I've come to realise that learning can be very efficient when learners have opportunities to create, part of which is about making and discussing choices. This is not always easy, particularly when learners make choices that I might think are not the most productive. There can't be total freedom, and there must be constraints and boundaries, mathematical and otherwise. The balance between freedom and constraint is something I've always found difficult, and particularly this year when allowing these children more freedom than they might have been used to. But I felt it was important that they have a different experience of mathematics than ploughing through workbooks in groups differentiated by ability. This year, I also taught a class of two students higher maths, which is the Scottish equivalent of AS level. I provided opportunities for them to create their own problems to work on, often variations of exam questions, doing and undoing, sometimes removing the numbers, sometimes inviting them to ask, what if not? Such methods draw attention to the structure of a question and classes of questions. I find this makes learners more attentive when encountering novel problems, much more effective than the injunction, read the question. I was continually exploring ways of encouraging these learners to use a high level of initiative. As well as generating their own examples, I taught these students how to use GeoGebra, which allowed them to create and then work with dynamic images, invaluable for economy of time and energy. I also upgraded reflection, encouraging them to decide when and how they wanted to record their own illustrative examples. I was surprised time and again at how well these students could recall things we had worked on much earlier in the year, more so than many other students I've taught in the past. I can only conclude that this is due in large part to the emphasis I placed this year on using initiative. I repeatedly found that tasks on which a high level of initiative appeared to be used resulted in better retention and better flexibility, or more flexibility. I must say, however, that it is not at all obvious to what extent initiative is being used, or even what this might mean, but careful observation can reveal signs that learners are working more or less consciously. These signs are easier to identify when working with only two students. 
But if we are to talk of effective teaching, of efficient use of time, then for me, an important consideration for the teacher is how the learners will be encouraged through the design of tasks and activity to use a high level of initiative. Saying this, it was very clear to me by observing these two learners closely that initiative cannot be forced. It is fair to say, and by their own admission, that one of the students was more motivated to learn mathematics than the other. I remember the day that he brought in some problems he had spontaneously created at home for me to solve. In contrast, the other student was clear that after finishing the course, he would be going back to work on his farm and for the rest of his life, a mindset which made it harder for him to sustain interest when things became difficult. Whilst I could design tasks and activity that encouraged the use of a high level of initiative, I became very aware that I could only provide opportunities for them to engage with the mathematics at a deep level. But I would like to think that the work we did in this classroom altered both students' ways of thinking. At the very least, it seemed that both students learned to become more conscious of what they were doing. By the end of the course, they were certainly thinking more carefully before acting on first impressions or in, in habitual ways. And importantly, I think they re- I realised... I think they realised that they were competent mathematicians. I think this was also true for many of the children in the 8 to 11 year old class. My aim in teaching both groups of learners was to encourage them to think differently about mathematics and about themselves. I wanted to provide access to what it is to do mathematics. I wanted them to get a glimpse of what, of what mathematics really is, a creative endeavour in the widest sense whilst ensuring that they had opportunities to create the meanings required for further study, success in qualifications and so on. In short, they were successfully learning what they needed to learn, whilst making decisions about how to do it, within the structures that I provided, at least most of the time. It is my conjecture that this is an effective way of teaching mathematics, to bring the powers learners already possess into use, to find ways to encourage learners to bring something of themselves into the doing of mathematics, through the design of tasks and activity that require the use of a high level of initiative. Thanks for listening. Hello, my name's David Weston. I'm the CEO of the Teacher Development Trust and one of the authors of Unleashing Great Teaching. On Twitter, I'm informed underscore edu. This year, I've learned more about the importance of clear communication. Whether working with teachers, head teachers, policymakers, or colleagues in my own organisation, I've realised just how many times I retreat from saying the thing I'm really thinking in case it gives offence. But the cumulative effect of never quite saying what I really think has caused some real problems. Some people leave conversations confused, Others imagine I'm hiding a terrible message that's so bad we can't even speak of it. Others think my lack of communication means I don't really respect them. So I found some really fantastic tricks, and to get those, I would suggest you have a look at three books. The first one is Fierce Conversations by Susan Scott. The second one, Radical Candor by Kim Scott, no relation as far as I know. And the third one, Discussing the Undiscussable by William Noonan. I've learned the power of communication this year, and it's something I'm going to be working on for the next year. I hope you find something useful from that too. Hello, my name is Dylan William.
I am Emeritus Professor of Educational Assessment at University College London, and on Twitter I am at Dylan William. The slice of advice I want to offer this year is a book by Brian Kaplan, an economist at George Mason University, and it's called The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. It's a book I didn't want to like. I was hoping that it wouldn't be a convincing argument, but after reading it word for word, I find it very difficult to argue against the main idea. And the main idea that he advances in this book is that high school education, and certainly college education, at least in America, is mostly signaling. What he means by that is that what people are learning in completing high school or going to college is actually far less important than the qualification to get at the end. He shows, for example, that one year of high school, if you finish ninth grade in America, you earn about $2,000 more per year. If you finish two, that's, you get about 4,000. If you finish three years of high school, you get 6,000. But if you finish the fourth year of high school, you get an extra $9,000 on top of that. In other words, about 40% of the entire value of education is gained just by getting that final diploma at the end of, the of your course of studies. A bachelor's degree level is even more marked. Each year in the first, second, and third year increases your lifetime earnings on average by about $2,000 per year. But the final year, just getting the bachelor's degree, increases your income by $20,000 a year. And the same thing is true at master's level. One extra year at master's level is worth 2000 If you actually get the master's degree, it's worth 13000 So that's the basic argument, what is called the sheepskin effect. Actually getting the diploma seems to matter far more than what you're learning. As support for this argument, Kaplan shows that students don't actually learn very much. If we look at reasoning skills, we find that some people are better at reasoning than others, and people with master's degrees are better at reasoning than people with just a bachelor's degree, and they are better than people with a high school diploma. But when you look at how much they learn over the course of their studies, you find almost no change at all. In particular, one study by Perkins showed that there was no change in the reasoning ability of graduates compared with their, those same people's ability to reason at the beginning of their graduate studies, their undergraduate studies. So Kapler's argument is that Education, certainly higher education, is mostly signaling. It's at least a third, and his personal view is about 80%. In other words, that 80% of the value of the degree is not actually anything that you learn, but what it is that you can prove about yourself. And what he argues is that it proves basically three things, that you are conscientious, that you are um, conforming to standards of society's expectations, and you have a certain amount of ability. That's why, for example, an IQ test wouldn't be enough, because it wouldn't show that you could actually knuckle down and do stuff and work hard at things that are boring. And in that regard, he points out that the fact that a lot of college is boring is a feature, not a bug. If it wasn't boring, it wouldn't be so valuable to employers. Now, of course, you could actually argue, who cares if it's signaling? The individual who has the signal doesn't care. But the point is, we subsidize education to a massive degree and what we've done is created an educational arms race. The idea is that 
or Kaplan's argument is, that by making education more and more expensive, we actually require people to invest more and more in proving that they have these skills. And that means that everybody has to get more education. We, have, we will now have to get master's degrees rather than bachelor's degrees just to prove that we have more staying power than those people who just have bachelor's degrees. And so I'm not sure what the solutions are. I'm pretty sure that it doesn't apply to the UK in the same way that it applies to the US. I'm very sure it doesn't apply to all subjects. We know that petroleum engineers, people who study petroleum engineering at university, do learn stuff that is very valuable for them in their jobs as petroleum engineers. But I think the important questions that this book raises, I wish it didn't, but I can't see the flaw in the argument. The important questions it raises is um, mostly around what is education for and what are we doing to young people by making them go through these kinds of uh, hoops to prove that they have these three things, this conformity, this conscientiousness, and this ability. It's a disturbing book. I wish it had different conclusions, but I find no flaws in his argument, and I think we have to take it seriously. Hello, my name is Emma McRae, and I train teachers in ITE and FE. On Twitter, I am at McRae Emma. This year I've learnt that subject knowledge is far more important than I had imagined um, and that the curse of knowledge leaves us blind to the complexities that exist in our subject. And I'm going to try and attempt to share a couple of examples in my subject, which is maths, that were catalyst for this insight. So let's think about factors. If I asked you to list the factors of eight, you'd pretty confidently list one and eight and two and four. So let's put that to one side for a moment. Now I'd like you to factorise half A plus half B. So hopefully you've identified half as a common factor without too much trouble, proceeded with factorising. But wait a minute. If we bring back our factors of eight, why is a half not in that list? OK, let's factorise minus A minus B. OK, minus 1 is the common factor that you'd identify. But again, let's refer back to our list of factors of 8. Negative 1 is not listed as a factor. So why is it that when we list factors of a number, we default to listing only positive integer factors, but when we're factorising, all factors, including fractions and negative numbers, are considered? So it's about the context, and that's context that we're so familiar with. I don't think we even notice the inconsistency. I've never explicitly pointed this out to students, and that means that they're left to somehow draw their own inference about which context leads to which application, which for novices is, is pretty much impossible. Let's consider another example, which involves the classic pervasive misconception that to add fractions, you add the numerators and you add the denominators. So consider this scenario. A test comprises of two papers. A student gets nine out of 10 in the first and in the second, they get seven out of 10. What do they get in total? So I'm happy that that's 16 out of 20. 
The problem is, is that marks are often written as fractions. So we end up with a scenario where you've got 9 over 10 plus 7 over 10 equals 16 over 20. Now, even if we don't explicitly write that out, students might draw an incorrect inference from this scenario. In fact, that misconception that we're talking about. And perhaps now it's easier to see why this misconception is so difficult to budge, despite there obviously being other reasons for it. But until now, I'd never consider this one. Worse still, I think it's a really tough one to address. But at the very minimum, perhaps it's time to ask teachers of all subjects to stop giving marks to students as fractions. I unearthed these when I was designing questions for students to practice. And so I suppose I'd urge you to do the same as often as time permits, because I really think that creating our own tasks is when we better understand the nuances of our subject and it helps us to overcome the curse of knowledge. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Harry Fletcherwood. I'm an Associate Dean at the Institute for Teaching, where I run the Fellowship in Teacher Education programme. I've been thinking a lot recently about The Power of Moments, which is a newish book by Chip and Dan Heath, in which they describe ways of making a moment uh, uplifting, exciting and memorable. A good example of this uh, is a mate of mine who turned up recently said, uh, I've picked up my new car, do you want to see me picking it up? And I'm like, well, okay, uh, out of lightness, say yes. And they'd, he'd gone to collect the car and it was covered by a sheet. Uh, and he literally unveiled it, pulled the sheet away from it. He was so excited that he got someone to film him doing it, you know, free advertising for the car company. Um, and I guess I've been thinking, what, what does this look like in lessons? What does this look like in a professional development session? How can we make it feel really special? while also maintaining sight of the content and the key ideas. Hello, my name is Jamie Frost. I'm a teacher at Tiffin School and I run DrFrostMaths.com. On Twitter, I am DrFrostMaths. Uh, this year, what I think has made the biggest impact to my teaching is having a slightly deeper awareness of the range of questions on each aspect of the GCC curriculum uh, and ensuring that my teaching covered and revised as many topics as possible. When I was in my first year of teaching six years ago, I had a set three of three in year 11. And after the final exam, I managed to get hold of the breakdown uh, of their marks on results day. Um, I was a little shocked to find that one of their worst answered questions was a relatively routine question on constructing and subsequently interpreting a cumulative frequency graph. In at least one case, it likely accounted for a difference in grade. I did feel a degree of personal responsibility. Fast forward a few years to my middle set year 10s and they were doing their GCC uh, a year early. In the last lesson before their study leave, a student had brought in a list of questions that he had struggled with in his revision. One for example was to express 2 root 2 as a power of 2, uh, something that I hadn't explicitly covered when I had done laws of indices and thirds. Uh, I also covered a bunch of other questions that hadn't been seen for a while in exams. And to my delight and by a massive stroke of luck, pretty much every question covered in that lesson, including the student's one, uh, came up in the exam. But this year I've left much less to luck 
One thing I did earlier this academic year was systematically go through my database of GCC questions by topic, uh, which covers uh, multiple different exam boards and qualifications. And this resulted in the uh, full coverage worksheets you might have seen. But it's also meant I've been more mindful of points to make and questions to cover when I've taught younger students as well. And I've been a bit better in thinking about the fringe questions whenever a student asks me about a specific topic. For example, when I cover quadratic sequences, I make sure I've covered at least one example with a negative coefficient of the end term. And when I cover bearings with year eight, I now cover questions involving isosceles triangles, co-interior angles, and so on. For probability, I didn't just make sure I did the infamous Hannah Sweets question, but a variety of algebraic probability questions that involve a mixture of algebraic skills, whether cross-multiplying or otherwise. So in summary, I think I've been more systematic this year, ensuring I've covered everything within reason, uh, based on the greater experience of historical exam questions. Hello, my name is Gemma Sherwood. I'm a maths teacher and on Twitter I am at Gemmaths. I have always been a perfectionist, which causes problems when things have to be done by a certain time. This year I've learned that it's okay to not try for perfection all of the time. Even more, I've internalised that considering I'm constantly learning, perfection is a stupid thing to think about. I'll never reach it. I enjoy what I do. I always try to do it well, but I don't overdo it. I now remind myself regularly that good enough is exactly that. It's good enough. Hi, I'm Jess. I'm a maths teacher. On Twitter, I am 49cubed. And something I have learnt this year is how much my choice of examples matters. So uh, probably this time a year ago when I was teaching, the examples I would use whenever I was explaining a procedure or trying to demonstrate a concept to my class would be fairly randomly chosen. And I think a really classic example of this is teaching students how to calculate the angles needed to draw a pie chart. So I would do one example, and be fairly straightforward. Then I would do a second example, maybe still quite straightforward. And I might do an example where they had to, where you might get decimals in your answers. And then students would do some questions. And that was, it was fine. They could, they could deal with it. They'd copy down these examples into their books and then do some practice. And it was, it was all right. It wasn't a disaster. It wasn't anything that anyone told me was a problem. And so I carried on like this. But actually, I just, I think I was missing a trick, primarily. I don't think I was helping my students to really understand what they were doing. So what I do now, when I'm first explaining something to my class, I'll choose, I'll show example number one, and I'll model how to do that. And then I'll show example number two. And example number two will be intentionally really, really, like, similar to example number one. So I might have just changed one frequency, or I might have... My favourite thing to do is to double all the frequencies. So I've doubled all my frequencies for drawing this pie chart, say. And you go to your students, right, look, just before we work out, before we work out, what, how do you think that's going to change the angles? And I know, we all know, it's going to stay the same, the angles aren't going to change. But you say that to a year seven, to a year eight, who's learning how to draw a pie chart for the very first time, 
they say nearly always, oh, well, the angles, the angles will double. And they say that without really thinking. But just, they will just go, the angles will double. You should go, oh, brilliant, thank, like, thanks so much. You don't tell them if they're right or wrong. You really try hard not to give that away with your face. Um, so then you do, you do the second example and you might, you might let students do it independently. You might do it together. It depends. But once the second example's done and they suddenly go, wait, wait, the angles, the angles aren't doubles. The angles are the, the, the same. Wait, why are they the same? And that, that, that process of allowing students to think more deeply about what they're doing. And actually, if they're wrong, they're so much more likely to think about what they're doing and where it's come from and why they need to add up the frequencies and look at 360. That will suddenly, not instantly, not automatically, not overnight, it's not like an absolute kind of life changer, but it does impact on the conversations that you can have with those students and the conversations they will have with you and with each other. They can become... I guess, far more mathematical and far deeper rather than just, oh, I've added something wrong and I can't work out why. So I think kind of my main takeaway from this year or one of my main takeaways from this year is choose your examples really carefully. Don't just shove up some questions because that'll do. Think carefully about where your opportunities for discussion and for kind of a deeper understanding can come in. I'm Jo Morgan. I'm a maths teacher and writer of the website resourceaholic.com and on Twitter I'm MathsGem. Um, this year I have learned a lot about teaching in depth and not rushing through things. I know it seems totally obvious that we shouldn't rush but I feel that secondary teaching is such that we have a lot of pressure on us to move fairly quickly through topics and we don't have enough time to really research topics while we're planning our lessons. If you look at a lot of modern resources, textbooks, popular PowerPoints, they seem to encourage a fast pace and a lack of depth. Um, It makes such a difference if we do take the time to plan a topic carefully, because then we think about the subtleties and the definitions we use, the range of different explanations of concepts, examples and non-examples, questions that really get to the heart of topics. There's a lot to think about. In the last year, I've become much more aware of the importance of the choice of questions that I use. I really notice when a set of questions hasn't been carefully written now. Importantly, I've realised this applies to A-level teaching as well, which I've so often overlooked. Over the last few years, I've put loads of thought into my Key Stage 3 and Key Stage 4 teaching, but I've come to realise that my A-level teaching needs a massive transformation too. And again, I need to slow down. I don't have time to slow down. But I need to do it in a really clever way so that I'm teaching more in depth and in in a just much more sensible way without all this racing ahead. I spent a considerable amount of time this year looking at old textbooks, Um, some of them from the 50s, some of them from the 1800s. It's been really helpful to see the clarity of explanation used in these books and the types of questions they choose to use as examples and in their exercises and the volume of questions and exercises, which has changed hugely in modern textbooks. When you look back, you realise just how much we skip over in modern teaching. 
for years, I think I've only been skimming the surface of mathematics, and I think it all needs a massive rethink. Hello, my name is John Brunskill and I'm a primary teacher. I teach year four at Reach Academy Feltham and I also lead on the foundation curriculum there. What I've learned this year is that getting thinking ratio and participation ratio right, getting those right is uh, extremely difficult, but I think it's the most important thing you can focus on as a teacher. So what do I mean by each of these? Uh, they're taken from Doug Lamov's Teach Like a Champion um, and they tap into the cognitive principle laid out by Dan Willingham in his book, Why Don't Students Like School? Willingham talks about how a teacher told him about a lesson she gave about the Underground Railroad in 19th century America. The teacher had uh, all the children bake a rustic sort of biscuit that the slaves escaping the southern states took with them on their journey. And she asked Willingham to evaluate how effective the lesson had been. Um, and he replied that if she wanted her students to learn about making biscuits, weighing out flour, preheating the oven, that was probably very successful. That's what they were mostly thinking about. But that's not what she wanted them to learn about. She wanted them to learn about the Underground Railroad. Um, and and he, caps, he sort of like um, encapsulates this in the idea that memory is the residue of thought. So you need the children to be thinking about what you want them to remember. So I've been thinking really hard about this this year, um, about planning not what students will be doing, but what they'll be thinking about. Um, I, I want my students to be thinking much harder than me during lessons, and that, that's thinking ratio. Alongside that, I also want as many as my students as possible to be thinking about uh, whatever it is I want them to be thinking about. So this is participation ratio, and it's easier said than done. I think a lot of our pedagogical techniques promote a drop in participation ratio. For example, asking a question to the class and then selecting a child who puts their hand up gives you a participation ratio of one. Uh, it gets even more difficult because it seemed to me this year that as you increase participation ratio, it's really likely you dec decrease the, the thinking ratio and vice versa. Um, it's hard to get both of them high. Uh, uh, let me give you an example. Um, recently, we've been studying Ernest Shackleton in our history lessons in year four. And in one of those lessons, I decided that I wanted what I wanted my pupils to be thinking about was what a good leader Shackleton was. This was because they were going to go on to write a biography of Shackleton, but also because I wanted the unit to have an underlying theme about leadership, um, uh, decisiveness, positivity, teamwork, selflessness, all the attributes that make a worthy leader. So previously, I think I would have approached this um, by thinking about what a cool activity that the children could do. Um, so I might have thought um, Shackleton was a great leader. Let's get the children writing their own speeches about what they think makes a great leader um, or, or like a manifesto for a good leader or... Um, or they could, they could write their own Shackleton speeches, inspirational speeches, and perform them or record them for YouTube. But this wouldn't actually give them the crucial knowledge of why Shackleton was actually considered a, a great leader. To do that, I needed to consult some primary sources. And so I found some letters and diary entries from the men that were actually on the um, expedition. Uh, these quotes were full of specific praise for Shackleton. They talk about when he dived into the freezing Southern Ocean to rescue one of his men in the dark of the night, for example. Um, so I could have just told them about all those examples, but then I'd have been doing most of the hard thinking. They'd have been doing a lot of listening, and some of them would have been listening hard, but some of them may well have checked out. Um, all of the thinking ratio would have been, been on me. 
So instead, I gave all the children the quotes uh, printed out and asked them in pairs to to select what was, in their opinion, the greatest act of leadership um, that that Shackleton undertook and and why they think that was the best one. So they spent a few minutes reading together and discussing and debating in pairs. Um, And once they've done that, I can now ask anyone in the class their thoughts, 100% participation, because everyone's had the time to think about it and discuss the key information that I wanted them thinking about. Also, after I asked the first child there, another child disagreed immediately, so I can let them rub up, and now I've got all the children uh, participating and thinking about the the key uh, stuff that I want them thinking about. After that, I had all the children write down what what made Shackleton a great leader, and they then focused on the number one thing that I wanted them thinking about. They they all had lots of examples to write write down from real sources. So this is an example um, of where I think I got it right, but I get this wrong all of the time in so many of my lessons. Um, and I think it's going to take me years to properly master this, but um, that's what I'm thinking about now, and I'm going to look forward to trying to improve even more next year. Hello, my name is John Selleck. I'm a teacher of English and a literacy coordinator at my school. And this year, I've learnt more than in any other year since my PGCE. And all of that has come from books and blogs and edgy Twitter and podcasts. And I think broadly, I can just about categorise what I've learnt into three areas. Firstly, the first thing I've learnt, that learning doesn't have to be disguised. And... In fact, it shouldn't be disguised and is in itself its own reward. And it's helped me an awful lot to solidify that and sort of bring it to the front of my conscience. And yeah, well, once I'd aligned myself with that prem- with that premise uh, and also that learning is not performance, it's kind of become relatively easy to take the next step then and start considering what is the most effective way of getting my students to learn. If it doesn't have to be disguised, what's the most effective way of doing it? And so, um, yeah, it's helped me a lot. It's helped me to simplify my own definition of what teaching is. I've gone on a journey of self-reflection. and It's been a little bit uncomfortable at times, and it's one that I've heard many on the podcast, and, and Craig himself admit to, uh, that has sort of seen me recall many lessons from my past and lessons that I've planned thinking that my first priority really was providing activities to fill units of time in a lesson uh, instead of my first priority being the learning and I know Craig refers to his Swiss roll moment and and that's an anecdote that resonates a lot with me I've got several examples from my past as I'm sure many people have uh, not least a lesson on as an English teacher uh, and a lesson on an inspector calls that revolved around me asking the pupils to scrunch up written notes into paper balls to sort of symbolically bring down a cardboard cut out of the Berling household. And it, I, I don't think it was completely without value. Um, I love Tom Sherrington's analogy of a diet when considering what goes into your lessons. But However memorable that lesson might have been, it wasn't the best way to revise the downfall of Arthur Berling, which was my objective. And I guess 
it was a real weight off to realise that most often just telling them stuff is the most effective way. And I'm, I, well, I'm pessimistic about my chances of becoming a teacher that just relies on a direct instruction approach. Uh, I don't think I want to be that teacher either, uh, which again is why it's affirming to hear Tom, Tom Sherrington talk about the diet. But certainly as an English teacher, I see parallels between Craig's development that he outlines in his books and my own discovery of Engelman's work. It, that came to me uh, initially via Diane and James Murphy, uh, who, who run a wonderful reading intervention programme called Thinking Reading. And well, now they've got a book out in the same name. And we invested in the programme in our school. I saw, went and sort of scouted it. And we invested in that programme, that thinking reading programme. And a good proportion of the training was theory-based and it was Engelman and it was DI. And to be honest, they're quite extreme and no-nonsense. The thinking reading is quite an extreme programme and it's no-nonsense in its approach. But I have to say it was game-changing stuff for me. Not particularly because I spend much of my own time teaching the programme, because I, I don't, but because of how that theory then impact, impacted on my classroom practice. And so I guess that allied to reading and listening to more of, of Daniel Willingham, Dylan William, it, it's really started to help me cut to the chase a lot more in my teaching. It, it, that's the bottom line, I suppose. Um, I, I may not have honed or practised the specifics of a, a, of of that particular approach but I've certainly embraced the spirit of it more and I've certainly got a much more straightforward approach to my lessons and certainly the, or the planning of the lessons um, basically to help my students learn rather than perform and that, sh that shift has made a real difference I'm looking forward to developing it next year uh, look I, I've been on really good courses in the past run by talented people who I admire that have been based on disguising learning and that was all I was about for a long while, but becoming au fait with the, the other end of the spectrum, I would certainly made me a more rounded teacher, I think. Um, yeah, so that that's the biggie. Just a couple more. I've learned that comparative judgment is the future. I attended a workshop that was run by Daisy Christodoulou and No More Marking and um, then recorded the podcast with Craig afterwards. And just that, as an English teacher, that really has the potential to be a game changer. And I think it's probably going to take a few more years for it to become the norm. But it's very exciting, uh, probably for two reasons. One, it's really pleasing to know that there's going to be a genuine replacement in the pipeline, or there is a genuine replacement in the pipeline uh, for the rubric-centric, traditional marking grind uh, that, that we're all on. And secondly, just is so effective and it's so accurate and um well, dare I say it's so fun to do in comparison to to normal marking. Uh so that would be that. And and finally, if I can just squeeze one more in in terms of what I've learnt this year, um I've learnt and this is very fresh in my mind to be honest, I've learnt that I need to set the bar higher for the pupils I teach, to be blunt. Um, because, well, because nine times out of ten, they'll respond. And I've just had, just earlier this week, a wonderful experience at the Debating Matters Championship in Salford. 
and having what well, well basically what happened was having set up a debate in society with our sixth form a few months ago i kind of tentatively inquired about taking them to watch it and i had my arm twisted into entering them and then on monday i was able to just sit back and watch them absolutely excel and win the whole thing and it was just incredible and and to be honest it wasn't just them it was the kids from every other school who were phenomenal and just to see young people at a prestige event in a fantastic venue was at the Lowry in Salford under immense pressure from professional no-nonsense judges and they just belied their age really to it to impress so much and I had something of an epiphany when I was there and just realized that I needed to push the pupils I teach uh, or the t- pupils that I come into contact with in, in different contexts more and more because they'll respond you know and, and there was me thinking that you know I might just make them watch we might just go along to see how other people get on and no, no we, we entered and we won and or they won <laughs> and um, yeah the, the bar needs to be set high and we owe them that uh, yeah so that's me thanks very much cheers oh I'm uh if you're remotely interested, I'm right okay so at right okay so at uh, on Twitter. Cheers, thank you. Hello, I'm Jonathan Hall at Study Maths on Twitter. I'm the creator of the MathSpot and Form Time Ideas websites, and I'm also a full-time lead practitioner at Leeds City Academy. Here's two ways in which I've developed my practice over the past year. So, the first one is the use of manipulatives. Um, we're lucky in that we've got a head of department, Marcia, that's fully stocked our uh, math storeroom with every manipulative under the sun. And I've also been fortunate to go on two fantastic CPD courses, one from uh, LaSalle Education, Mark McCourt, and the other one at the STEM Centre in York, from um, delivered by Mike Anderson and Steve Lyon. Recommend them both highly. Uh, too many manipulatives to go through in five minutes, so picking one at, one at random that I did with my year 10 recently uh, was geoboards. I put a series of lessons on areas of rectangles, triangles, parallelograms, etc. using the geoboards for all these lessons. And then my final lesson was um, a bring it all together lesson with a with a low floor, high ceiling task, which began with simply, OK, in your groups, can you make me a rectangle, trial, triangle, parallelogram and trapezium on your geoboards? Off you go. And off they went. And within 30, 40 seconds, some of the groups had already put their hand up and said, yeah, I've done it. So there we go. But then I'd say, OK, right. They all now need to have an area of 12 square units. That's on thinking, recalling all the areas that they'd learned in previous lessons. Eventually, after two or three minutes, me going around having these class discussions with them, a few groups finished it, and then I'd throw a real kicker, which would be, right, okay, the shapes can't overlap. Now, on a 10 by 10 geo board, that's quite difficult. Um, but again, it is possible. I wouldn't say I'm a task, but it's impossible. That's a bit, um, a bit mean of me. We did manage it at the end. So, so I said, okay, what about if you did it with 15 square units? Can you still do it then? Oh, so I'm not sure about that. But we had those discussions about, okay, well, the areas of the shapes are going to be larger, so it's naturally going to be more difficult. But more than that, if you're trying to make rectangles, 15, you're not, you're only allowed really five times three on a 10 by 10 rectangle uh, geo board, because 15 by one's not going to fit. So the fact it's got less fat pairs is going to is going to make it tougher as well. And then um, if they manage that, I did actually go as far as 16 square units which increases the options for factors, 
obviously larger shapes, larger area, makes it difficult. So all the groups were working on a variation of the same task, and they were all practicing their areas of rectangles and triangles, to say, but in such in such a better way than just a, a traditional sort of exercise. Yeah. The second thing then was the use of the my turn, your turn examples. And I know Craig spoke a lot about this at the uh, the mass comps. Uh, the whole department is now using this my turn, your turn, which is basically, okay, we demonstrate in silence to begin with. Then we'll go back and narrate over what we did. And then finally, okay, are there any questions? Now I find it's really important to leave the asking any questions at the end because more often than not, if you're getting interrupted, as you're trying to demonstrate something for the first time, uh, firstly, it disrupts the flow of your example that you're trying to deliver. But secondly, more often than not, by the end of the silent teacher and the narration, yeah, most pupils have had their own questions answered for them. So anyway, at the end of the uh, silent um, narration and then any questions, then I'll reveal the your turn. And one thing about a real push on this year is making sure that the the my turn and the your turn are mathematically linked in some way. So, for example, I uh, multiply and mix numbers. I might do as a my turn one and a half uh, multiplied by two and a quarter. Uh, demonstrate that. And then your turn will be three quarters times four and a half. Now, the kids will work through it and they should hopefully, if they've done it correctly, get exactly the same answer as the my turn. So uh, and then we can have those discussions about how did that work? So the first one was one and a half times two and a quarter, and the second one was three quarters times four and a half. And the kids will spot eventually that, okay, the one and a half, I've halved that to get three quarters, and then the two and a quarter, I've doubled to get four and a half. So if you halve one quantity and double the other, it makes sense that you get exactly the same answer. So that's been really powerful. The my turn, your turn, we've been using for quite a while now in the department, but it's making sure that the two are linked, that I've found really, really powerful. Okay, so those are my um, top two uh, ways in which I develop my practice. Thank you for listening. Hi, my name is Catherine Birbal Singh, and I'm the headmistress of Michaela Community School. On Twitter, I am known as Miss Snuffy, with an underscore between the Miss and the Snuffy, S-N-U-F-F-Y. Um, and that's because I was Miss Snuffleupagus when I used to write a blog a long time ago, and the idea was that it was the elephant in the room. Um, so this year, I've learned uh, a few things. Um, you know, one of the big things I think people misunderstand about Michaela, and I myself even misunderstood, was that um, we tend to believe there's a trade-off between uh, systems, uh, consistency, and, um, and autonomy and, and freedom. And we think that uh, without systems, we have lots of freedom, and with systems, you somehow have to give up some of your autonomy. And, 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 and that's what I used to think too. And, and um, uh, running Michaela for the last four years, and I suppose in particular this year, uh, I've realize that in fact it's kind of the same with children the way structure liberates children and that seems you know counterintuitive but that structure and order actually makes children more free it's the same with staff um that actually when you have order 
and when the systems are centralized and the tensions are centralized and that kind of thing, and the children naturally behave for you, you are liberated uh, to think more about teaching and learning. And you're free to really delve deep into the ideas, you know, into intellectual thought around education, um, which you perhaps wouldn't be able to do if you were in a more chaotic situation because you're thinking carefully about how to get the children to sit on their chairs or how to stop talking. Whereas teachers and Michaela don't have to think like that. Uh, so that was, that was an interesting learning point for me. Um, the second thing is, um, you know, our knowledge organizers, you know, everyone always comes to Michaela saying, oh, you know, we want to see your knowledge organizers. And, and I always slightly cringe when they do that because um, while we use knowledge organizers now, we don't use them anywhere near as much as we used to. Um, and that's because uh, we realized if you use them too much, uh, children can turn into kind of parrots and, and you don't want that. You know, while memory should always be the goal of, of lessons and learning, uh, you also want them to understand it. And if you rely too heavily on knowledge organizers or if they are written in ways that is, is too rigid, I'd say, uh, you, you, you can miss out on understanding with the children. So, um, yeah, you, you, you can get understanding from a variety of ways, uh, partly knowledge organizers, but you also want to constantly refer to uh, various bits of knowledge in different ways in the lesson. And you want to give different types of homework. Um, so variety is important. And, uh, and that's something else that I've, I've learned this year. Um, the third thing I'd say I've learned this year is um, relationships with kids. I mean, I mean, I suppose I've always known that relationships with kids are really important. But what I hadn't realized was that if you have a school that runs really well and the children behave, um, it's, it's, it's absolutely necessary for senior team to push that point with staff. Because uh, sometimes uh, it, it may not seem so necessary when the children simply behave. But it is. It is always necessary. Uh, bonding with children uh, and, and having something click with them is so important uh, for the children to feel motivated, for them to feel uh, like we care. And, um, and that is something, again, that, that, that I have come to see uh, that what I've always thought, which is that relationships with kids are, are, are probably the most important thing of all. Um, last thing I'm going to say is uh, smartphones. You know, that has been a massive learning curve for me this year. Um, because uh, I had no idea just how destructive they are and how damaging and how they don't just destroy children's uh, opportunities at GCSE. They can get them involved in crime. They can get them involved with the wrong kinds of people and they can put their lives at risk. And, and I am now very much pushing with parents that they should not give their children a smartphone at all. Um, at the very least, they should take the smartphone away for a few hours every night. But um, yeah, I, 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 I'm... I, I never used to be, but now I'm a big advocate for children not being given smartphones until until the age of 18, which seems pretty extreme, but, but it's a view that I've come to in the last year. So that's it. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Bye. My name is Chris Bolton, and in the classroom I was a maths teacher, and now I'm Director of Education at the online learning and revision company UpLearn. On Twitter, I'm Chris underscore Bolton, and this year I've learned how to better use example and non-example sequences.
First, if trying to teach what something is, like an equation or a prism, be sure to include an example of what it is not. Second, make that non-example better. So if I'm trying to teach what a prism is, I want to have a non-example where maybe just one face is the tiniest bit curved, followed by a positive example with the same curved face becomes flat, giving the shape a consistent cross-sectional area throughout. Or to teach what an equation is, maybe I want to show two expressions linked by a proportion symbol or an inequality arrow, and then change that symbol to an equal sign. So a better non-example is one that's as close to the positive example as possible, to show a kind of boundary on what the concept is and is not. So first, include a non-example, and second, make it a better non-example. Then third, include more than just one example and make them look as far apart from one another as you can while still being a prism or an equation or a third, whatever you're trying to teach. The goal is to show as big a range as possible. The pupil who's only ever seen a regular pentagon will think all pentagons look like that, even if they know that a pentagon is technically any five-sided polygon. Anything from three to eight examples often works well, but try to use as few as you think are necessary. So first, include a non-example. Second, make that non-example better. And third, use more than one example. And finally, don't over-explain. The example sequence is the teaching. Narration will usually be needed to explain what is and isn't an example of the concept, but beyond that, the examples should often speak for themselves. So save any definitions until the end, and then explain that an equation uses the is equal to symbol to relate to expressions, or a third always includes a root symbol and won't evaluate to give a fraction or an integer. So to summarize, first include a non-example, second make it better, third include more than one positive example, and fourth let the example sequence do the work and wait to offer a definition at the end. Hi, my name's Luke. I'm a teacher and on Twitter I'm LukePierce85. I'm really glad to be asked what I've learned this year because I absolutely love learning. Indeed, uh, this time this year I decided to leave my comfortable life in Oxford and travel around the world precisely because I didn't feel that I was learning enough in my job at the time. Taking the time out gave me a great opportunity to think about what I wanted from work and reflect on my teaching. So if you're in a job that isn't challenging you in the right ways and you have the chance to take a break, I'd strongly advise it. Along the way, I learned that I love the mountains even more than I thought and so I'm excited to now be helping to set up a new school in the Alps. If you want to know more about my trip, I blogged about what I was learning at lukepierce.eu slash travel, but as most of you are probably teachers, I'm going to focus on the things I've learned about education during the year. Firstly, if you have any say in assessment in your school, or even if not, you should read Daisy Christodoulou's Making Good Progress. I learned from this that formative tests should be short, focused and frequent. 
whereas summative tests uh, should be very infrequent and if they are used, results should be given in a way which is meaningful to teachers, pupils and parents. I'm currently using these ideas to help me write my school's assessment policy, which I'll be sharing over the coming weeks to get further suggestions, so it'd be great if you could help me with that. From Twitter, and especially the teachers of Michaela School, I, I learned that you don't have to mark pupils' books every week. I used to do this, uh, providing carefully written feedback, and this was always the part of my job that I hated. Recently, I've set more homework online, which is often marked automatically, and then I can give whole class feedback, focusing on the misconceptions and set follow-up questions where necessary. I feel that this is equally, if not more useful, and leaves me more time to plan lessons, which is what I really enjoy. Finally, I've learned that teaching is a very respected profession in Switzerland. Why is this? It's probably quite complex, but my sense tells me that it's because the training is more substantial and the pay is significantly better. Regardless, if you want to live abroad, it's an absolutely great choice. Come and join me. My name is Mark Greenaway. I'm a lead practitioner and on Twitter I'm at Suffolk Maths. Um, as a school, as a department, we've been looking at um, tackling the less structured problems that are always cause um, students a problem. And this has been our, the PMR target of a number of us. And we've adopted different approaches onto how we might look at this. So um, some of us have looked at using the SSDD problems that Craig has hosted, um, which is very much a, a similar looking problem, but using very, very different skills and, and getting pupils to, to decipher that and to work through those. Some of us have been using Rucksack as a sort of an acronym, so read, um, understand, check, and so on. Some of us have been looking at using problems regularly throughout the whole year, and that being a key part of each lesson. Some of us have been looking at structuring problems, so enabling pupils to work their way through a problem by taking away the scaffolding. And finally, um, maybe the questions where you haven't got a question, you've just got a problem, um, a context, and pupils and we discuss what the problem might be so we create our own problems from a context. Having looked at the um, outcomes it's very difficult to uh, attribute any great impact to any of these techniques to be to be brutally honest and so perhaps my main takeaway from this year has been the fact that we really need to embed the skills first they need to be really strong at their understanding. They really need to be secure in their ability to do Pythagoras, to solve equations, to um, do long multiplication, whatever it might be, before they can tackle problems that require several skills pulled together. And I think um, the scheme work has been a little bit loose. I mean, there's been no real accountability to staff in terms of um, whether they're sticking to the, the skill that they're supposed to be assessing or whether they push on. I think some staff, and perhaps myself included, um, because the pupils are understanding the work, you tend to extend and extend and extend. But I think sometimes you do that at the risk of the depth of their understanding. So in order to address that, I'm building in some a lot more assessments as they go through the year. And those assessments will be based upon where I think students should be within a particular group. And if they get those right and they understand those fine, then that is okay. Then staff can push on. But I need to we need to ensure as a department that the pupils really do understand the skills um, before they move on. 
So we're looking for depth rather than necessary extension. Um, and uh, I think I'd like to also build in perhaps more variety um, and perhaps use some of these skills that I've talked about lower down the school. Um, and perhaps we all, all too often we leave it as a department too late in the year. Um, so that is my, my takeaway from this year. Hello, my name's Mark Court. I'm Chief Executive of LaSalle Education. On Twitter, I am at eMathsUK. Um, this year, I've learned lots of things, traveling around the country, visiting schools. We have the pleasure of working with thousands of schools across the UK, getting to see classroom practice and hearing from teachers. It's always great for picking up ideas. Um, I think the thing I would I would focus on this year that's been important to me. Um, I'm a big fan of cognitive science, and probably the book that had the biggest impact on me um, in my career was very early on in my career. I read a book called Human Cognitive Abilities by John B. Carroll. Um, anyone who knows me knows that I'm an enormous fan of John Carroll and his work. Um, his work was seminal in. Um, seminal importance in, in establishing mastery approaches and testing them and establishing the idea that everyone can learn well, given the right conditions and right amount of time. Um, and this year, after a conversation with someone on Twitter, um, I was reminded of that book and went and read it again. I, I haven't read that book for quite a long time. Um, and it was fascinating to go back and revisit that phenomenal book i recommend everyone reads it um part of our obsession at the sale and what we do with complete maths around cognitive science because we have a system that is measuring um the teaching process and the learning process and the outcome of both of those um both in terms of performance outcome, um, but also outcomes over time and how they relapse and uh, how learning is undone over time. Um, and we've been running this for a couple of years now, giving us uh, millions of data points um, on the teaching and learning process. And we're now starting to find early results, which was the intention for Complete Maths and something we'll publish later, we're now starting to find early results from these millions of data points indicating what conditions lead to um, optimal learning, as in long-term memory rather than performance. Um, and what we're seeing is, given a, a learning episode, so however long it takes to learn an idea, so we define that as a learning episode, however long that is. It could be a couple of hours, could be a couple of weeks. Um, we're finding that where pupils are studying that idea in that learning episode, that they have greater gains if in the next learning episode, which could be connected or not, they are tested on that learning episode. And then the next learning episode, they're tested on that first one. And the next learning episode, they're tested on the first one. So we and then after that, there doesn't seem to be an impact if they continue to be tested or not one we can find at the moment. So what we're seeing is that by doing a study of a learning episode, a study of an idea, 
following that over a period of time over the next three learning episodes by being quizzed on that initial one, um, those people seem to have the longest retention when tested later on on, on, on actual tests. Our quizzes don't have grades, um, but tests do later on. And we're also finding um, those initial learning episodes from a mathematical idea in our curriculum, which is very deliberately spiraled and taking into account maturation. Um, we space those out initially, theoretically space those out. But now that we're getting data points on all of this information that we're getting, we're now able to start seeing what the optimal spacing is. And uh, I probably shouldn't share this because it's absolutely not robust yet and we've got a lot of work to do on this. But initially, with the millions of data points we've got at the moment, we are seeing that for the longest gains to take some new novel mathematical idea uh, and we study it on day one, say, and however long that takes, we find that the, the best spacing is day one, day two, day six, day 31, and day 90, and then don't have to revisit. I find that fascinating. That's my favourite learning this year. Hi, my name's Mark Quinn. I'm a head of maths. I'm also an assistant head in charge of curriculum and timetabling. My Twitter name is Mark Quinn Arts. I won't bother following me in all honesty. I use it more for, for following other people than actually tweeting myself. So uh, I'd save that. Um, there's two things that I really want to talk about in terms of what I've learned this year. The first one has been having read Teach Like a Champion by Doug Limoff. Um, the impact that tweaking my use of mini whiteboards um, his idea of show call has really had a positive impact not just on my teaching but the teaching of the department it's been a bit of a running joke whenever we're doing observations and the QA cycle that I will always ask people about whether they could have used mini whiteboards to to improve the assessment within the lesson rather than just asking one student why not ask the whole class see their responses gauge the the learning of all rather than just one student um, and just to to get people listening to the podcast not necessarily everybody's read read his book but the Craig Barton podcast has been great in terms of giving people a snapshot of what his ideas are about um, we've bought some visual or well, we wanted to buy visualizers but we end, ended up buying some cheaper alternatives just some webcams that we can plug into the computers when in the classrooms use them on the interactive whiteboards and that's had a really really positive impact students end up wanting to be chosen to be to be shown to the rest of the group whether they're correct or incorrect and just building that atmosphere of actually whatever's on that whiteboard really has a, a positive impact on the the rest of the lesson um what i have found as well is because of our idea of random calling students and um, picking people's whiteboards to go up to the front. We've had a lot less students just literally leaving their whiteboards if they're not happy with their response. They're wanting to to write something down so that it, it, it can either be praised um, or it can be used as a, as a tool for the rest of the lesson. Um, the second thing is silent teacher. Um, 
it's not something I've ever used before in my career, but having read Craig Barton's book, How I Wish I Taught Maths, that you've not heard about on the podcast before, um, it's it's really, really had the desired effect with, with all of my teaching groups. I've had a really, really tough year nine group this year. They've got a group of students that they're not enough by math in maths by any stretch of the imagination. Um, they've had mixed groups over the last couple of years in terms of um, split groups with teachers. Um, teachers have been absent and um, they've ended up with non-specialists for a little while. So they, they, it has been an uphill battle to to keep their engagement in the subject really. So I after reading the book, I thought I'd trial it with them. Um, used example problem pair as well and it got to the stage where when I was doing an example the kids would turn around to me and say sir can you make sure you're not talking over it please which I didn't expect to happen I didn't expect them to request that and it has had such a positive impact over the last sort of four or five months of a year Um, we've been getting through far more content in terms of them being more focused, they feel like it's had a really positive impact on on their understanding of the topic. Um, whenever we've then done an assessment over the topic that we've just done, their scores have improved massively than they were earlier on in the year. So it was something that I've never really thought about using before. Um, I've got to be honest, when, when I read it in my book, I, I sort of sniggered to myself thinking, that's never going to work, but I thought I'd give it a go. And... It, it really has had a positive impact far more than I was expecting. And again, it's an idea that I've shared with the department over our, our department meetings over the last couple of months. And what's came back from students or what's came back from the teachers has been really positive feedback. The last thing that I've learned is that recording yourself for five minutes is far more difficult than I was expecting. And I'm, I think I'm up to about the 20th go. It's far from perfect, but I'm going to leave it there. So thank you very much. Hello, my name's Mary Myatt, and I'm an education advisor and writer. My Twitter handle is at Mary Myatt. This year, I've been thinking a lot about the curriculum, and um, one thing which has particularly struck me is the extent to which schools are really thinking hard about how they stretch all their pupils. And um, one thing that I've been particularly taken with and thought a lot about um, is a piece of work which has been done by um, Richard Kennett, who is um, a history, head of history in a school in Bristol and um, he tweeted about some work he'd set his students for homework in year seven and this homework was part of a unit that they were doing on the Norman Conquest and what the students had to do was to read some extracts from Mark Morris's um, account of the Norman Conquest and then answer some questions on it. Um, Now what was interesting about this is that Mark Morris is not a school textbook. It's an adult history book about the subject. 
Um, so there's some quite demanding language and concepts in there. What he found was is that all the students, even those with a reading age of below 10, were able to access it with the appropriate support. And he came to the conclusion that we really mustn't underestimate what our students can do, because with the right support, if we're planning to the top and delivering to the top, they can do it. Now, when I talked to him about this, he said, yeah, we set that for homework because in the classroom or during lessons, we're actually reading Simon Shamer's account of the Norman Conquest. And so what pupils are having to do is um, compare two historians' views of this period in history. Now, this is exceptionally demanding but interesting stuff, which is not normally covered until A-level or sometimes even undergraduates level. Um, but what Richard has done is made sure that students have got access to this um, and they're able to engage with it and produce really good work as a result of support. And the final thing I would say about it is he's paying them a compliment, saying, I think you can cope with this because it says on the homework sheet, this is meant to be difficult. Yeah, great. Work is meant to be difficult. Don't worry if you can't answer it all. So this great notion that we can expect more of our students, um, they will rise to the challenge and that what they don't understand will be unpacked through talk. And it's been um, a really thoughtful piece of work, which has made me reflect a lot on um, my own thinking about the curriculum. So I'd like to give a shout out to um, Richard Kennett for that really interesting piece of work. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name's Mel Muldowney. I'm a maths teacher at a school in secondary school in Birmingham. On Twitter and on my blog, it's Just Maths. Uh, the actual handle's at just underscore maths. So this year I moved schools for the second time in my teaching career and knowing how tough it was the first time um, I spent some time thinking about how I was going to um, manage my behaviour expectations um, and spent lots and lots of, well, it wasn't onerous time, I, I don't, don't think it was, but putting in place routines so to ensure consistency. But I started off trying to break my lesson down into bits so that I knew if I nailed a certain part of the lesson, I could repeat it next time. Um, so I really focused on the start and the end of the lessons, um, topping and tailing them, because then I knew that if I could nail the start of the lesson, I could get them to a, a point where they, they were calm and I could teach. And then if I nailed the end of the lesson, I knew that I would be calm, ready for the next lesson, not having to run around collecting books. So the starts of my lessons go like this. The students walk into the class. There is already a, a quick starter sheet on the table for them. Um, their books may be out, depending on if it, I'm in the classroom I'm always in or a classroom I'm sometimes in. Um, but this starter sheet's really important. It's it's my bread and butter. So it focuses on topics that I know they have been taught because I wanted to overcome any objections about, first of all, I didn't know what to do. Well, 
the argument I then can give back is, no, actually, it is a topic we have covered, not something that was covered in year seven, eight or nine. Um, or So I, I can instantly say, look in your book, look in your book, getting students to think, trying to reinforce those that good practice of, of getting them to, to just flip and think, I suppose. Um, but also they understood what, the routine was that there was this consistent message every lesson they come in they do the same thing again to overcome that oh I didn't know what I needed to do miss well it's the same as last lesson the previous lesson the previous lesson it'll be the same next lesson um it sounds boring but they, it builds in this cycle of confidence that they, they then start believing that I'm never going to give them anything that's beyond them the the work is achievable but it's also something that um, they then get a bit of bit of pride in their work because they're then able to see that they're getting a little bit of success. Um, and then at the other end of the lesson, I spent some time thinking about how best I can make sure that I'm not running around at the end of the lesson collecting pens, papers, books. Um, so we we practice collecting the books in the the rows, and it was very much at the front of the class. Books passed to the front. Let's see how quick we can get them here. Um, and it then makes giving the books out next lesson so much easier. Um, so that's my two little tips, I suppose. Look at how you're topping and tailing your lessons to try to make sure that they you have these routines and that it is consistent no matter what subject you teach. There are, of course, times when I go off piece and I go, oh, today we're going to do something different. But for 99% of my lessons, they will start and end like that. Um, hope that's useful. And I hope you have a happy summer holidays. Do you even say happy summer holidays? Probably not. Bye. Hello, my name is Naveen Rizvi and I'm a maths teacher at Great Yama Charter Academy. On Twitter, I'm at Naveen F. Rizvi and this year I've learned how to make resources which mean pupils learn a lot more in way less time. I create practice exercises which communicate new concepts in a way which is practically bulletproof, almost guaranteeing pupils to understand the concept without any misconceptions. I spend a lot of my time creating my resources which have been heavily influenced by variation theory. From this, I realised that it's not just the questions I ask, but the order in which I ask them, the sequence that matters the most. Now I think that asking a particular set of questions in a particular sequence is the teaching. The questions I create have only one thing changing at a time, and only the relevant aspects of the concept is being changed, which is forcing pupils to apply their understanding of the concept. But the application gets trickier with every question, and the irrelevant features of the problem type stay the same. This forces pupils to think deliberately and to form a mental schema of the concept. For example, pupils are learning how to solve an equation like 8a is equal to 40. If you keep the coefficient of 8 the same, but then change the value from like a whole number to a number where the result will be a improper fraction, an improper fraction, or a proper fraction, or a unit fraction, or 1, or a negative fraction, the sequence allows you to go from the simplest problem type, like 8a is equal to 40, to negative 8a is equal to negative 7 in brackets squared. Variation theory has also allowed pupils, all my pupils, to be successful in the classroom. Yes, some are slower than others. I think that will always be the case. But the slowest pupils are now faster than they were before. And the weakest pupils have benefited the most from the exercises made using variation theory.
So, in summary, we need to think long and hard about the sequence examples we first share. And the sequence of questions that come next is a sequence that's key. A good question asked out of order in a sequence is no longer a good question. This is only true for initial instruction when learning something for the first time. In the future, greater variation from one question to the next will matter more. But in the beginning, I think all but guarantee success if you can get the questions right from the beginning. Hello listeners and lovers of learning. My name's Ollie Lovell and I'm a maths and physics teacher, head of senior maths and educational podcaster from Australia. On Twitter, you can find me at Ollie underscore Lovell. This year, I've learned that much of what I and others have believed about evaluating effective and ineffective approaches to education was mistaken and also misguided. I'd like to start by giving three examples of mistakes that I've made based upon a misunderstanding. First up, when I took on a new leadership position at my current school, uh, I first consulted a list of educational approaches ranked by effect sizes to try to identify some good uh, key starting points of areas to focus on. The second mistake is during my teaching training whilst writing assignments, I quite frequently would quote effect sizes as justifications for my arguments. And the third mistake is in episode 6 of my podcast, The Education Research Reading Room, I cited effect sizes as the basis for classifying 12 different educational interventions as either evidence-based or not evidence-based. As you may have worked out by now, the thing that I've learned this year is that combining, or should I say comparing educational approaches by means of comparing aggregated or, or standardized effect sizes is an unreliable and misguided approach to try and work out what works or what works best in education. This learning was sparked about six months ago now when I came across a paper by a gentleman by the name of Adrian Simpson. And Adrian's paper was entitled, The Misdirection of Public Policy, Comparing and Combining Standardized Effect Sizes. And I'll I'll try to make sure we link to that in the show notes. Now, in the paper, Adrian talks about three factors that influence effect sizes, yet these factors have nothing to do with the actual uh, content of the intervention, that is, the educational approach, and they have everything to do with the way that the experiment is designed. These three approaches, or these three factors, are unequal comparison groups, range restriction, and measurement design. So as a quick example, take a given intervention, imagine some computerized tutoring system, and you compare that to uh, business as usual, you're going to get a different effect size than if you compare it to uh, individual tutoring. So that's one thing that's not to do with the tutoring program, but it's actually due to what you compare it to. So that's the first factor, unequal comparison groups. The next thing is range restriction. If I conduct this tutoring program, but I slice up my data in different ways, that can also greatly influence the effect size. And the third thing, measurement design, is in relation to how I measure the efficacy or the outcomes of the experiment. So I could uh, measure this tutoring program, this digital tutoring program by means of a standardized test at the end or a, a test that I've designed myself. And based upon that measure, it will also greatly influence the effect size. Now, I had to get to the bottom of this more. So I invited Adrian onto the Education Research Reading Room podcast as a guest. And in it, he built upon his paper and emphasized that the doing this, comparing uh, aggregated effect sizes in order to try to better understand what works best in education is actually a category error. He drew an analogy and suggested that doing this is the same as trying to work out 
which of two cats is older based solely upon their weights. Now, this works in some contexts, but it works only if you can control for all other variables such as the cat's uh, exercise regime, its diet, the breed of cat and things like that. When you can do that, sure, comparing cat ages by their weights might make sense. In this, and in the same way, we can only compare different educational approaches if we've controlled for all of these factors. And the thing is, that very, very rarely happens in educational research. Now, following my discussion with Adrian, I invited John Hattie, the world's foremost educational meta-meta-analyst, onto the podcast to respond and in some ways to defend the meta-analysis, an offer he took up in the following episode. Now, there were many commonalities between my discussions with Adrian and with John, and both really emphasized the importance of getting to the story behind the research in order to fully understand it, but they still did disagree on this one key point, which was the validity of combining multiple studies into one simplified metric, the effect size. So I was very, very lucky to have the opportunity to speak with both Adrian and John on this topic. And after having that opportunity, I remain quite strongly convinced, or should I say very strongly convinced, that trying to answer the question of what works best by means of comparing aggregated effect sizes is fundamentally a category error. As Adrian mentioned in the podcast, the question of what works best in education isn't quite the question that we should be asking. Instead, we should be asking what works best, for whom, under what conditions, for what purpose, and crucially, compared to which other alternate options. And as you can imagine, all these different factors aren't something that can be captured in a single aggregated effect size. So, that's one of the key things that I've learned this year. If you're a teacher who's been beaten over the head with effect sizes or just a curious inquirer, I'll try to convince Craig to link to these two podcasts as well as Adrian's paper in the show notes. And I'm also currently putting together a bit of a blog post that summarizes some of my learnings in relation to this particular topic from my discussions with Adrian and John. And I hope to have that out uh, by the time that this podcast is out as well. Big thanks to Craig for his initiative in pioneering this slice of advice episode. Thanks for the opportunity to contribute. And until next time, keep learning. Hello there, my name is Paul Collins and I'm a maths teacher from Surrey and on Twitter I am at Mr Collins Maths. Uh, this is what I've learned this year uh, and to give you a bit of context um, I moved schools in September so previously I was working at my last school for four years I was head of maths there for two years uh, and essentially when I moved schools this year I stepped back from being head of maths uh, just to be a normal teacher I had a one-year-old at home so I was hoping to spend more time at home with family as opposed to you know maybe doing all the lesson resources and you know the work we essentially take home with us um, so when I moved school I was trying to think about when I was setting up my classroom for the new year and when I was thinking about my lessons and, and how they would look and feel and what the kids would expect from them, etc. Like what I was going to do to essentially try to put my stamp on the place at my new school and to essentially rebuild that reputation that you get when you're out of school for a good number of years. The kids kind of know you, they know what to expect, they know what uh, they're going to be doing in your lessons, etc. So that daunted me a little bit when I moved schools because I wouldn't have that and I'd have to rebuild that again. So 
the idea that I had kind of stemmed from a, a discussion that I had with one of the other members of the um, TES Maths panel, Danielle, who you probably know as Pixie Maths more commonly. If you've been on her website, it's fantastic. All the resources that she has on there, they essentially inspired me to sort of think, well, you know, she's done all of this work and it's all in her own format. It looks the same way. Uh, the kids, you know, will experience you know, very similar lessons from one lesson to the other. And I, I like that consistency. So when I spoke to her about it, I said, look, does it work? Is there any point in doing this? Like having it all the same format? And from her personal experience, she honestly felt that that it that it does. It does make a difference. So what I've done this year is I've kind of branded me, my lessons, me as a teacher, you know, maths with Mr. Collins, etc all in a certain way whereby when the kids walk into the room it looks a certain way the lessons flow a certain way the structure is kind of similar so I did this mainly using PowerPoint slides so I kind of got a template system all set up so I can quickly add resources and you know copy across slides that I've used uh, from other resources in the past so it didn't take me much more time planning than it would have otherwise so essentially I was just using resources I'd previously used but kind of accumulating them all together in one place um, because you probably know what it's like when you go online you download something it sits in a folder for a while and then you forget about it so what I wanted to do was really look about when I'm planning my lessons, really look through all those resources I've used in the past to think about what was good about them or what was bad about them and why or why I wasn't including them in my my next new lesson for this, uh, you know, my new classes this year. Um, and I've been doing that throughout the year. So I've, I've basically just been recreating PowerPoints from existing resources I had, um, but it's all been formatted the same way. So I have like Danielle Pixie Mouse, like she has on her resources. Um, I've got a logo in the top left-hand corner of the screen, which is, you know, my Mr. Collins Mass logo. Uh, I was lucky that one of my year 11s drew a kind of cartoony picture of me, which makes me look far better than I do in real life. So I put that on the, on the PowerPoint slides and I've then used that on other resources. And in my classroom, I've kind of I've got that you know picture of me up on my tutor display board for my you know my PCO form um, on the desk I kind of took one of the ideas so that I saw on Twitter where you have like a table frame on the desk with like uh, key facts in it that um, flow from one lesson to the other so kids can use it as like a support um, that's got the logo in it as well so everything well not every lesson because obviously I was doing the powerpoints as I was going throughout the year but as much as I possibly could the lessons looked the same the powerpoints looked the same the keywords were there learning objectives um, the question slides all looked the same uh, the example slides would just I, I prefer it personally when I just have a question and then I work through the example on the board I don't really like these powerpoint animations where they click through all the time I'd rather as a teacher do that bit and do that on the board and then the kids copy it down before they then do and questions themselves etc so that all looked the same and I think that was the biggest thing that I've done this year having learned from what Danielle kind of spoke about and her experience of what she did um, and it just it just made me massively think at the start of the year more about how I was planning my lesson what I was including what I wasn't including um, and actually thinking about what the kids see and what they kind of um, are expected to do and I think that helped. I think that just massively helped not only kind of um, announce myself to my new classes as this is who I am, this is what you do here, this is what your lessons will look like in maths. Um, and obviously they'll have their own opinion as to how they feel they went, but I think they'll, they would have enjoyed them. So essentially that's what I've done. And I'm just hoping to continue with it next year and obviously recreate the PowerPoints that I haven't taught uh, topics for this year, share them with colleagues, put them on the TES. Uh, I'm hoping to do a bit of a blog post on it as well. So um, yeah, if you want to follow me on Twitter, please do so. And uh, yeah, look at my um, blog when you get a chance and hopefully there'll be something updated on there, on there soon. Thanks. Mm -hmm.
name is Paul. I am a high school maths teacher working at Trinity Academy Halifax and my Twitter handle is at Mr Rollinson with an underscore between the Mr and the Rollinson. Over last year, I think the biggest thing I've learned about has been to do with retention. Previous to this, when planning lessons, I think I dedicated most of my effort and attention towards, well, what I consider to be the teaching side of teaching. In other words, helping students to learn new things and get really good at them. But what I don't think I paid enough attention towards was how to help students retain the old things that they've learned. However, the podcast interview with the Professors Bjork back in early 2017 really changed the way I looked at this and got me thinking about how when students are learning things in, say, November, they may well be forgetting some of the stuff they learned about in October or the previous lesson for that matter. And in the podcast, they talk about things to do with spacing that may help alleviate the problem and reduce the amount of forgetting that happens in the long run. Well, over the last year, I've been reading about this sort of stuff and trying a few things out in my classes. And I'd like to share two strategies with you that seem to work quite well and are fairly quick and simple to do. The first one is to do with end of topic tests. So usually when my classes finish a unit of work, they will do an end of unit test. It's low stakes, 20 marks or so, based on the things that they've done in the previous few weeks. Well, I've continued to do that but I've now started adding a bit of a delay in there between them finishing the unit of work and then doing the test. About a month or so. And what that seems to have done is shift the focus of the test away from assessing what they've picked up in the last few weeks towards assessing what they've managed to remember after a bit of time has passed. But probably more important, what it seems to have done is provided students with another opportunity to revisit something from the past after a bit of time has gone by. The delay may sometimes cause the marks to go down a little bit compared to how they would have done if they'd done the test straight after the unit of work, but the long-term benefits seem to outweigh this. So that's the first strategy. The second strategy is to do with homework. Now, I used to set homework based on what they were currently doing in lessons. So for example, while they learn to add fractions, I would set them a homework based on adding fractions. But I'm now thinking that students already get time in lessons to practice the thing that they're currently working on. And what they don't seem to get as much time for in lessons is practicing old stuff that they've moved on from. And homework can be a good opportunity to kind of plug that gap. So for example, with my old year eights, uh, when it was springtime, I was setting them homeworks based on things that are in autumn or in year seven. They were the same exercises that I used to use, I just delayed them by a few months or so. And with my year 10s, I was a little bit more clinical last year. And each week I would set them a mixed topic exercise for homework, about 15 to 20 questions or so. And the questions would be a mixture of stuff based on all stuff throughout the scheme of work up to the point where they were currently studying. So, for example, while they were studying unit nine, the homework they got was based on stuff from units one to eight. A couple of questions in each, all mixed up. Because these things seem to be based on around long-term retention, it's probably a little bit too early days to talk about how, how, how successful they've been. However, now I'm taking my classes into the second year, for example, year 10 to 11, and hoping to reap the benefit of that towards the end of the year. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful summer. If you're listening to this after the summer, then I hope you enjoy the next one. Thanks. Cheerio. Bye-bye.
Hello, my name is Peter Mattock. I'm a head of maths in Leicestershire, and on Twitter I am at Mr Mattock. This year I've learned about the importance of the interplay between the use of representations and variation theory. I'm not sure why it never really occurred to me before about how these two work together. I've looked at them both in my work with the NCTM and on Twitter, but it always kind of been in separate phases of the lesson. I might introduce a concept using suitable diagrammatic representation or a series of examples and non-examples, but I hadn't really thought about situations where the two would complement each other. They may both appear in a lesson, but not necessarily at the same time working together. This year, though, I had a sort of epiphany. Both variation theory and the use of suitable representations are meant to help expose the underlying structure. They're meant to help learners see why a process works the way it does or a concept is as it is. How powerful could it be then if I could harness both of these simultaneously? using a carefully varied mix of worked examples and questions alongside suitable representations might do more to highlight and expose the underlying structure of what is going on better than either of them do in isolation. And once I began to think about it, it seemed the obvious thing to do. Areas such as simplifying algebra, adding fractions and order of operations have all benefited from the use of careful mix of examples and questions alongside suitable representations. Using the two together really did more to show learners what was happening and why it was happening. My department and I have now built these approaches into lesson plans we're developing for the new Year 7 programme of study, and it heavily influenced the writing of my book, Visible Maths. I'm planning to explore these more in my, com my next Complete Mathematics Conference session in October. As well as reading my own book when it comes out, I would urge listeners to read Mason and Watson's work on variation theory, visit Craig's site, variationtheory.com, and read lots of stuff published by the Association of Teachers of Mathematics. They could also visit the NCTM website and get involved with their local maths hub exploring teaching for mastery approaches. Hello, my name is Richard Tock, I'm a maths teacher and on Twitter I'm at TikTokMaths. This year I've learned to actually plan my lessons. That might seem like a really strange thing to say. However, I was struck by a blog post by Jess Pryor where she talked about a mistake she'd made previously in her teaching career of resourcing lessons instead of planning lessons. And this is a trap that I've fallen into a huge amount. So. I grew up in the age of TES when I was training to be a teacher, um, TES was a thing and whatever lesson you wanted everything was on there. So if I'm teaching, if I was teaching a lesson on adding fractions, put adding fractions into TES, I did a huge amount of resources and a huge amount of really good resources as well. However, I'd often find the best resources, spend ages sifting through things, cutting up card sorts, everything like that. My students weren't actually making very much progress. and Thinking back to it, there's a big reason for that, and that is because I was so obsessed with the resources that I was trying to create, or the resources that I was trying to download, and, and how good they were, and how engaging they were, that I hadn't actually planned my lesson. I hadn't thought about how I atomise the content, so students can be explicitly taught the different parts of the topic. 
I hadn't thought about what misconceptions students might have. So students, so how I could avoid those misconceptions or how we can flag up those misconceptions and talk about this mis these misconceptions. And I personally hadn't gone through the topic and properly looked and properly looked at all those learning points within it. Since I've started planning my lessons instead of resourcing them, I've had a lot more success in getting students to learn things and pointing out all the individual small little things that make up a topic. And actually, one of the huge benefits is my own subject knowledge has increased um, incredibly, actually, by looking in depth at all the different things I'm uh, going to teach. Hi, my name is Rob McPherson. I'm a history teacher and an assistant rector at Dollar Academy in Scotland. And on Twitter, I am at Robin underscore McP. So this year has been my first year in a senior leadership role. So I've taken an awful lot on board and it's been exhilarating and exhausting, probably in equal measure. But it's been fantastic. And I think of all the years I've spent teaching, um, it's probably the one in which I have learned the most. Uh, one of the key aspects of my role is that I'm the research lead in my school. And it's the first time I've really taken that role on board, having been involved in research before, but I wasn't actually the person really responsible for, for being the lead. So that's been a new thing for me. And the one thing I probably learned most from that is just an awareness of my own limitations, I suppose, in that I've realised that I'm very much a sort of general practitioner when it comes to being the research lead. You know, I know a little bit about lots of different areas, but actually what you really need to be a research-informed school is to develop a culture where you have a team of consultants who really know their stuff on specific areas and you try to marshal their talents and, and their expertise so that the whole school can benefit from that. So to try to become a research-informed school as opposed to just a research-informed teacher, then you do need to think about ways in which you can build capacity. So that's one of the big take-homes for me this year and something I'm going to be working very hard on next year. And thankfully, we've got a good team of people in place that I think we can pull that off. So uh, baby steps at the moment, but looking forward to seeing what we can do. And on that, um, I am also organising Research Head Scotland. So if anyone's keen to come to that, please do so. It's on September the 22nd at Dollar and features none other than Mr Barton Maths. So if that doesn't sell you on it, then I don't know what will. Um, some other things to think about. One is that as a, a senior leader, then it takes you out of the classroom a bit. So I've done far less in the way of contact time this year compared to previous years. And that is actually probably the hardest transition to make because you know you get into the role because you love teaching so much to spend less time in the classroom. It's kind of quite a hard hit, but uh, I do find that observing is just as good as teaching a lesson yourself. So I try to do as much of that as I possibly can. Um, and that's something that also opens you up to so much more in the way of, of new pedagogy and practice. So it's a really healthy thing to do. So stating the obvious, perhaps, but if you get any opportunities at all to prioritize lesson observation, then I recommend that you do. Um, as for advice on reading, well, there's been a lot of great books this year. And so I can recommend a few. I really, really enjoyed um, Closing the Vocabulary Gap by Alex Quigley. I thought that was a terrific book and it's got some great sections in it, which should really be the starting point for whole school discussions on, on literacy. And you know, his aim of trying to get pupils to get a sort of 50,000 word store um, is, a, is a tremendous aim. And I think one that schools should really gear themselves up for. 
also thought psychology in the classroom which was co-written by mark smith and jonathan firth was really fantastic um i think most people will be aware of the book by david dido and nick rose on what every teacher needs to know about psychology so this takes it a step further um, and a, a really great book we used it for a professional learning book group when we looked at a chapter on motivation so that was really good also thinking reading by james and diane murphy was great um, as was slow teaching by jamie tom and we also used the ingredients for great teaching for our book group by um, pedro de broeker um, and that's really good stuff and loads of culinary references as well so uh, it told in the inimitable voice of uh, pedro so well worth the read um, and there was also a book as well by some northern bloke about how he's not very good at teaching maths that's probably worth a, uh, a look as well so uh, it's been a great year for books lots of good reading out there so i recommend getting stuck into some of that for the summer so i hope that's been quite useful for you just one or two thoughts for me and um, yeah enjoy the rest of the podcast Simon Cox. Uh, I'm a maths teacher in Blackpool and I'm director of the Blackpool Research School and on Twitter uh, my handle is at MathsMrCox. Um, I've learned quite a lot this year. It's been our first year as an EEF research school so it's been a pretty steep learning curve. Uh, learned an awful lot about the role of evidence uh, in education. Um, heard Professor Daniel Merce speak just last week actually who mentioned that being evidence informed is a moral duty uh, and I think that's absolutely right and not something I've considered for about the first 12, 13 years of my teaching un- until uh, until more recently. Um, the one thing I would take away this year is, is, is the importance of reading uh, in a professional context um, for all teachers. Um, and I don't just mean sort of research papers, but also uh, books. There's been a huge upsurge uh, in the, the, the number and the quality uh, of, of education books uh, in, in the last couple of years. There's been, there's been some really amazing ones that have come out. I think if I was going to sort of recommend a, a, a two or three to, to teachers who maybe haven't done so much reading previously, um, Carl Hendrick and Robert McPherson's What Does This Look Like in the Classroom? Really nice format to that book, uh, sort of a conversational interview kind of style, which brings in loads of professionals from loads of different areas uh, of education. Um, Daniel Willingham's uh, Why Don't Students Like School, which is an absolute classic, um, brilliant, brilliant book that really changed the way that I think um, about about education. Uh, and Daisy Christodoulou's Seven Myths uh, About Education, which, uh, again, um, when I first started training to be a teacher, a lot of those seven myths were taken pretty much as as being fact so that that was a really sort of ground breaking read for for me that one um obviously craig barton's book but i'm assuming if you were listening to this you've probably read that one already i think it's really important as as teachers that we that we try and get um as many different people across our schools and our departments reading as possible and there's a few different ways that schools can do that um Schools can buy books for, for teachers, and, and that's something that, that we've started doing in the, in the past year or so. Um, for a couple of hundred quid, which in, in, in school terms isn't that much money, you can get some really great dialogue going. You have some good meetings where you discuss chapters from the book, uh, and it's something that we're going to do as a maths department next year with, with Craig's book, um, and something that we've done as a leadership team uh, with, with a couple of books so far this year. So I think that's, that's really well worth doing. And if you can't maybe afford uh, to buy copies of books for everybody, just setting up a CPD library in your school you know sort of 20 books you could probably do it for three or four hundred pound really really rich resource to have in your school and you can signpost uh, people towards uh, books that might interest them so that that's worked really well in our context and um, also a journal club where you look at look at sort of accessible research papers uh, and 
starting point for me would be something like Strengthening the Student Toolbox from uh, Dudlowski, Principles and Instructions from Rosenshine, things like the recently released Metacognition Guidance Report that Alex Quigley uh, co-wrote with uh, some people from the EEF. Um, just just really great ways of getting a getting a conversation going, a professional dialogue around research. You could do it as part of CPD, uh, you could do it departmentally, whole school. Um, just set up a little uh, sort of voluntary uh, journal club within your school and I think that's a, just a really nice way of getting of getting people who are dead interested in that kind of thing uh, talking and it spreads you know once, once a few people start doing it um, it does spread and you do find that, 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 that an awful lot of people uh, start to get on board uh, so yeah that's my main takeaway this year is about is about is about reading uh, and just making sure that obviously I'm, I'm, I'm continually sort of challenging the, the beliefs that I've held perhaps for for many years on the Advanced Math Support Programme as the Math Technology Specialist, and I'm on Twitter as Math Technology. This year I've learned lots of things, but a couple really stand out for me where my thinking has developed. One of these is mathematical, and one more related to the use of technology in the math classroom. First thing that I've changed my view on is the use of graphing apps on phones. I'd previously thought that, that smartphone apps for Jojo and Desmos were, were fantastic tools, but the small screen somehow made them inferior for compared to using the full versions of the software on a computer. However, having observed students use them, I've changed my view on this, and I now think they're at least as good, if not better, for students. Um, I still like using Jojo on a laptop, but for a lot, of, a lot of younger people, using the app on a phone, the small screen's not an impediment to them interacting with it effectively. And, and I'm really excited about the future, as I think, I think students having personal access to such powerful graphing tools could prove incredibly useful in, in enhancing their understanding of, of maths. The second area where my thinking has developed was, was much more of a mathematical one. And it was one I saw at the, at the wonderful BigMe conference at, at Warwick in April. There I, I went to a talk by Martin Flashman, who's a, a visiting professor from, from the US. And he gave a talk about the use of mappings between numbers and the use of um, how you could represent a function as a mapping between two number lines as a graphical representation as opposed to our more conventional way of, of plotting graphs on a pair of Cartesian XY axes. I'd seen this idea of, of a function as, as a mapping between two number lines before but I hadn't really thought about it in the detail that he went to in, in his session and, and his session was a revelation that showed me how a change of representation can give a host of new insights to math to mathematical ideas. And in this particular case, it's made me think differently about things like composite functions, inverses, and even calculus. If you're if you're interested in, in either of these ideas, I've put a bit more detail on my blog, which can be found at digitalmathematics.blogspot.com. My name's Tom Franken. I work in mathematics education at the University of Birmingham and on Twitter I'm at T Franken. This year I've learned that teachers who want to can banish boring exercises in maths lessons. 
We want students to be fluent with procedures and sometimes they just need to practice stuff. But what if we could practice in interesting ways that allow learners to develop as mathematicians, asking questions, making conjectures, being organised and systematic and justifying their ideas? Well, we can. A problem with boring exercises is that learners' attention is placed entirely on the skill to be practised. In order to become fluent, the procedure has to move from being a conscious, effortful act to something unconscious and effortless. Dave Hewitt and I have been thinking about the idea of practice through progress. Practice through progress allows learners to gain fluency with the maths they need to practice, but also make progress in other areas so that the skill needs less and less conscious attention. We've got two ways of thinking about this. Progressing through the curriculum and progressing as a mathematician. We know there's a lot of content in the new curriculum and the first type involves practicing old ideas through new content, a kind of intrinsic interleaving. So once you've taught, say, fractions, you make sure they crop up when you do perimeter or solve equations or draw graphs. The second involves progression in terms of conjecturing and generalizing about mathematical relationships. And it's this second type where I think there's been some really interesting developments. I'm very excited by the work of Colin Foster. Colin designs great tasks and curates a lovely collection of mathematical etudes, which do exactly this, embed extensive practice within rich tasks. So there's plenty of opportunity to gain procedural fluency and plenty of opportunity to notice relationships, ask questions and generalise. Often pupils get to the end of an exercise and have nothing to reflect on. Colin suggested a lovely rule of thumb that if there's nothing worth discussing at the end of some work, you could probably have come up with a better task where learners get the same practice and there is something worth talking about. And what really got me excited is that Colin's empirical work shows that interesting practice tasks are just as good at developing procedural fluency as boring exercises. So there really is no need for boring exercises. It's perfectly possible to get all the practice you need while developing the mathematician as well as the mathematics. Hello, my name is Tom Sherrington and I am an education consultant. I used to be a teacher and a head teacher and I write the blog teacherhead.com and on Twitter I'm at teacherhead also. So the, my main thing that I've learned this year, having spent a lot of time talking to teachers, observing lessons uh, and working with senior leaders who are also trying to support teachers, is that we need to go a lot further, I think, when we're talking about an idea in teaching so that we agree and we explore exactly what it is that we're talking about. So, for example, if I'm working with someone and we're talking about the way they, they, they use questioning techniques in their classroom. I think we're kind of on the same page. But then when I go and watch them, actually, I think, oh, no, we weren't really. They, what, sometimes what is heard and what is uh, said can be different. And that can vary between different people. So people might report to me that, yeah, we've all been working on this strategy in our team. And I kind of go and observe and for the purpose of giving feedback. And all I see is they're all doing something different but they think they're doing the same thing. So it could be that they've all developed this resource for to support 
some kind of you know retrieval practice or something and you know, one teacher's barely re you know referencing it another one has laminated it and stuck it on the table and someone else is using it for really intense kind of quizzing and they all come back to the to their team and sort of discuss how it's been used reporting different levels of success and i want to say well it's no wonder you're reporting different levels of success is because you're all doing something different you're not doing the same thing at all so we needed to spend more time walking it through what do we mean what will it look like in practice and actually what they need to do is get what i'm seeing which is each other you know an observation kind of perspective because that tells you more uh, than actually just hearing someone describe their own teaching and there are certain things like questioning which are, are, are prone to that you might think you're doing something but you're not doing it in the same way someone else is and that means we we waste a lot of energy with kind of miscommunication around simple teaching strategies which are day in day out so there you go that's my main advice my slice of advice uh, is invest time in describing and defining and exploring the ideas you discuss so that you are more likely to then learn from each other in a productive way and leading to you all being more successful in your classrooms. Hi there, my name is Adam Boxer, <clears throat> I'm a chemistry teacher, I work at a school in Barnet in London called JCOS, um, you can find me on Twitter at AdamBoxer1, I'm going to be really cheeky and actually talk about two things, but they'll be quite quick so don't worry, um, thing number one is that teachers are a really kind of intellectually thirsty bunch uh, they really want to learn they really want to engage with interesting things and deep thought and philosophy about what it is that they're doing and improving their practice um, they don't always find it easy to get access to sources of high quality information um, and certainly under kind of traditional routes um, they don't necessarily have the ability to get hold of the good stuff um, so my advice would be get a few friends at your school and set up a little Google document. On the document, you put a list of dates, say a Friday, and next to it, you just write the word blurb. And each week, someone finds a blog online, and you can suggest ones to people if you want to, and writes a small blurb, a little synopsis, just a couple of sentences, and sends that out to the whole staff. And by cycling round, you know, five, six of you, maybe more, and in each one you can say if anyone wants to be involved, let us know. What you do is you really get a really good range of staff reading it because, you know, there might be 200 teachers at your school. And if they see it from you, they might think, can't be bothered, they might not even know you. Whereas if they see it from someone who works at the next desk to them, they might read it. And you'll find that you can really um, get to people and really help them engage with the good stuff. Um, and my second one is very quick is that any lasting change anything that you want to do to make your teaching better is going to take a long time it's not going to be easy so for example i decided a couple of years ago that i wanted to embed regular retrieval practice into my lessons um, i've tried now um, maybe six or seven different permutations and routines of how to get it right and i think i am now finally at the point where i'm happy but it's taken me a good couple of years to get there and that will be the case with anything that I do so if I want to make my explanations better or if I want to get better at checking for understanding that is going to take time 
and it's not worth giving up you need to kind of persevere with it and make sure and just trust in the research and know that this will make a difference to your long-term student outcomes thanks very much bye Hello, so this is Alex Quigley. I'm an English teacher, director of Huntington Research School um, for the next week, um, and an author and blogger. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Hunting English. Um, this is my slice of advice for Mr. Barton's Maths podcast, um, and the topic is what I've learned this year. Um, it's my 15th year as a teacher, um, and what I've recognised is I'm, I've still got a lot to learn. Um, one of the big learning curves this year was a understanding of metacognition and self-regulation. So I had the great pleasure of being invited by the Education Endowment Foundation to be part of a working group um, to develop a guidance report on metacognition and self-regulation. So for the first time in my career, I properly had to dig into the research, um, looked at a literature review from Professor Daniel Merson, Christopher Bockhove, um, and properly discussed it with real bona fide experts, uh, recognised how little expertise I have, uh, but maybe that was useful. I was I was the student in the room um, to have that perspective. Um, what I recognised is that it was a lot more, more than my kind of epithet thinking about thinking that I use, everyone uses, but doesn't really prove useful at all. Um, I think metacognition had much more substance to it and, and offers and offered a framework for to support thinking learning in every subject domain, uh, particularly independent learning and homework, which are perennial uh, issues for teachers. Um, and effectively, I think I recognise some of the detailed nuance of metacognition. So what struck me first was um, metacognitive knowledge, um, which I, if I'm to reduce that to a simple triplicate, it would be knowledge of a task, a given task, knowledge of your strategies, um, and then knowledge of yourself. Um, one of the um, ideas I've stolen from Professor Jonathan Sharples from the EF is asking people to consider um, how they got to the venue that day, how they travelled, and what knowledge they um, deployed for that task. Um, whether they took the train, whether they walked, whether they um, used satellite navigation, whether they um, knew the path straight to the door, all of those different um, aspects of the task and the strategies, and then also themselves. So, you know, did they need to get there for a certain time emotionally? How do they feel about being late? What um, strategies do they have in place if there are any issues, etc.? Um, and it really gave something tangible to start to consider the complexity of learning, then actually to offer us a bit of an infrastructure around instruction, um, explicit instruction in different subject domains, um, and there's so much more to it. And in writing the um, Metacognition Guidance Report, I really had to get to grips um, with this important aspect of learning that I hadn't really grasped for all the 15 years that I thought I did. Um, what that led to, another another key piece of what I've learned this year, is that actually our understanding of metacognition might be a bit thin, 
Um, but, but actually, it doesn't hook into a good, deep mental model of learning. And I think this is what teachers are missing. So I think our training is too short. It's often too thin. It's too variable. Um, we're prone to fads and fashions. And actually, every teacher needs a deep understanding of memory, of motivation, of metacognition, of emotion, affect, um, and then aspects of pedagogy. And I think we need this model of learning and, and the different barriers of learning, reading comprehension, um, number sense, etc. I think we've got to do a better job of making this mental model understood for teachers, accessible for teachers, and woven through um, career profile. And I just think for me, 15 years um, from my starting point, coming to that realisation, it's a little bit late, um, but also it was quite helpful. And I think in terms of initial training and school training, if we can really define a good deep mental model of learning, then we might offer us um, a pathway to better teaching. Um, so that, that's the key learning that I've taken away this year. Hope you and your listeners are well. It's Will Emony here, Head of Maths and Lead Practitioner at Wyvern College, just outside Southampton, uh, and the creator of the website's Great Maths Teaching Ideas and Numeracy Ninjas. Uh, so what have I learned this year? Well, I'm really getting obsessed with this uh, spacing, interleaving and retrieval practice uh, research. And I've actually been conducting some of the research myself with uh, Professor Doug Rohrer uh, and his postgraduate student, Marissa Hartwick, at the University of South Florida. We've actually been running studies in, in-house in our school at Wyvern College this year. And the whole idea is, can we really get the spacing effect to work using real, uh, real maths content, uh, so curriculum content delivered in a, a, a very realistic way with some year seven students. And uh, it's all about this idea of ecological validity. You know, can we get the spacing effect to absolutely work and prove that it works using real world maths content in our school? Well, the first time we run this study, we actually failed. And what we discovered from it was actually really useful. In the study, we gave students feedback only at the end of each of their study sessions. Uh, and what happened was basically the students who did the spacing never actually learned the topic that well. So what I've learned from this was um, if you space, you need to make sure that you don't do so until you've got really good acquisition first. The students have got to learn it to a, a good degree of fluency first before you then start spacing. Otherwise, there's a risk that if you space, uh, they, don't, they don't learn it that deeply in the first place. So we reran the study, and this time, rather than giving them feedback at the end of each study session, we gave it to them after each question. And lo and behold, the study was then a spectacular success. The, when in the spacing condition, the students scored twice what they did when they were in the mass condition. So just this simple little change of giving feedback after each in, uh, practice question made such a huge difference. So the big learning point for me, I think, is don't space until you've got them up to a level of a reasonable level of fluency uh, with the topic first. 
But if you do, uh, then you can get spacing to work using our real world math GCSE content, you know, with real year seven students in your school. So it works. Secondly, the Bjork visit. We had the Bjorks uh, over to Wyvern uh, during March this year. Uh, had them had them there for two days and learned so much from them. Um, one of the big things I think we got from them is uh, I think amongst teachers in this country, when I speak to teachers, there's this notion that there should be some kind of optimum spacing interval. And one of the most important things I learned from the Bjorks, I feel, during that visit is not to get obsessed about that. Don't worry about the, the gap of the spacing interval that much, but instead focus on the number of times you revisit a topic. The number of revisits is so much more important than a particular optimum spacing interval if you want to build good retention in your students. Finally, I have a little challenge for you and your uh, listeners. It's, it's about using the retrieval effect. Have a little walk around your school and have a look at what your students are using for revision notes. Are you giving them revision notes in a format that promotes retrieval or rereading? So just giving them passages of text and then expect them to do retrieval practice with it perhaps isn't as good an idea as giving them the practice quizzes and the flashcards instead of the text, thereby they they have no option. They have to do retrieval practice with it and they'll get much better retention. So that's the third thing I've learned. Hope you guys are well and keep the podcast going, mate. Take care. Bye-bye. Hi, my name is Mo Ladak. I am a math teacher from Peterborough and on Twitter I am at MathTup. This year I have learned lots and lots of things really, but the thing that I'm going to single out to talk about today is what I've learned about whole class feedback. Now, whole class feedback is something I've probably used a, a little bit before in an ad hoc way, but I've really decided to go to town on it this year with my year 11s. I've given it a really good go with them and I'm just going to talk to you a little bit about um, how I actually went about using that with them. So uh, with my year 11s this year I gave them regular exam paper, exam question based homework so they would get three or four questions a week from me to complete as their homework and um, when they handed it in I would very very quickly um, go through and and mark their work now when I was marking I would use a marking code so I wouldn't go through and and cross anything I tick it obviously if if it's spot on and anything that isn't quite right um, rather than putting across I just put a letter next to it Um, so I had I had a marking code that I used so for example if it was um, a notation error they've made, I'll put letter N. If they've misused an equal sign, i put the letter E. If they need to simplify something, a letter S. Or, or if they've got a misconception, then I would mark it with a letter M, etc. that kind of thing. So I would aim to spend between 30 seconds to a minute on each script. So I'm aiming to complete this marking exercise in probably about 20 to 25 minutes for a full class. 
then I would use one of these um, crib sheets that have been all over um, Twitter. So these whole class feedback crib sheets. Um, I've, I've created my own, but it's essentially the same as, as the other ones that you would find around Twitter. So on there, I would be highlighting um, any students that have shown particular strengths. Um, I would also be highlighting any common misconceptions that I've seen and explaining those through and, and, and using it as a point of discussion with the class. I would then be sort of highlighting any further areas that, that students need to develop, um, etc. So you know, picking up on literacy issues and that kind of thing. Then further to that, I would have a, a copy of, of, of one particular student's piece of work. So this might be a really good piece of work or, or it might be a student that's made a very interesting error in their work. And, and we would talk about that specific question um, as a class and, and, and highlight what the, what the strengths are and, and how, how a student could have improved their communication, for example, on, on that particular question. So that's something, again, that we would do as a whole class. And then as, as a kind of follow-up task for that, the students would be um, either doing their corrections. So, um, you know, on the board, I'd, I'd share the marking code to them so they would know what kind of corrections that they need to do. And some students may work together on that. I would have um, further tasks for them to do that were designed to address any of the misconceptions that the students had found. Um, or, or any kind of common communication errors that students have made. So uh, a way for them to kind of demonstrate some um, you know, developed understanding of those things um, and, and then have obviously have an extension task there available for students as well. And one of the most powerful things about this is that it freed me up as, as a teacher to be able to go and have those one-to-one -one intervention with students. So where, um, you know, I think the, the key one is where I've uh, marked their work with the letter M, where there's a specific misconception that the students have had, then I would go around and, and address those things um, either within small groups or, or on a one-to-one -one, um, as, as necessary. So... Um, <clears throat> well, that, that's essentially it, really. So uh, hopefully you, you found that useful. And um, I just wanted to take this opportunity to give a massive thank you to Craig for inviting me to, to come on and share that with you. And um, I hope you all have a fantastic summer. Thank you very much. Hello, my name's Craig Barton. I'm a maths teacher from the sunny northwest of England. On Twitter, I am at MrBartonMaths, and in my spare time, I run an education-based podcast that I'd strongly recommend you check out. So, what have I learned this year? Well, I'll tell you what, a better question would be, what have I not learned this year? Because this has been yet another 12 months of revolution and revelations from me. I've learned so flipping much. I've learned loads from the teachers I'm lucky enough to meet as I travel around the country and do work with them, and also from the podcast guests. They just teach me so much, both directly in the things that they say, and indirectly in the books they recommend I read, the research papers they recommend I check out, the tweets that they send that just really really get my head scratching. Um, but the thing I've chosen to reflect on in this particular podcast is my current obsession, which is sleep. 
Now, I've mentioned this a little bit um, in the podcast, and I'm actually going to do a special um, episode all about this with Mark Healy, who really got me into thinking about this at Research at Blackpool uh, earlier on this year. So if you're interested in any way about this, stay tuned for an episode all about sleep. And also, incidentally, I had a coffee with, with Colin Hegarty um, a few weeks ago, and I bored the life out of him with, with my obsession about sleep. And I tell you what, if Colin was struggling sleeping beforehand, he wasn't after my conversation, because God almighty, I went on about it because I've reached the conclusion that all the things I'm obsessed with that's cognitive load theory formative assessment desirable difficulties example problem pair silent teacher blah 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 variation intelligent practice purposeful practice blah 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 they all go out the window unless we solve the problem of sleep and by solve it I mean we ensure that both students and teachers get the right quantity of sleep and the right quality of sleep. Because Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, it has freaked me out big time. Um, Matthew outlines the, the, the problems we're going to face if we don't get enough sleep and if our sleep's not good enough. And long term, they're absolutely horrendous. Alzheimer's, cancer and so on. Every disease uh, you can link to. Obesity, all linked to sleep. But more directly for us, um, sleep is absolutely essential for learning. For three reasons, really. Firstly, uh, sleep gets the brain into a condition where it's ready to learn. Uh, secondly, stage four sleep, and again, I, w- I won't go into it too much here, but stage four sleep, the kind of restorative sleep, that actually helps the memory strengthen. It helps all the memories in there um, increase their storage strength. And REM sleep, the kind of dream sleep, that's associative sleep, and that's where the new information that you've learned throughout the day gets linked with existing schema and you start making all those valuable connections. So imagine if we don't have that, what a flipping nightmare it's going to be just trying to take in new information. You may take it in, but you're not going to, it's not going to be processed. It's not going to be stored. It's not going to be connected and so on. So my kind of takeaways and my reflections this year have been Matthew's five tips for getting a better sleep. So I'm just going to mention these briefly now. First is routine. Same time to bed, same time to wake up, even at weekends. Now, this is a source of conflict between me and my wife at the moment, because I'd love to be in bed about half eight, quarter to nine every night, whereas my wife's a little bit of a night owl. But routine is absolutely crucial. Um, Secondly is temperature. Got to get as cool as possible. 18.5 degrees is recommended. Now, there's been a bit of a heat wave in, in the UK over the last uh, few weeks, and I've had an absolute nightmare getting to sleep. But one recommendation is to have a shower, a hot shower, because this brings all the blood to the surface of the skin in the shower. Then when you come out, your body, your core temperature of your body cools quicker. So a hot shower counterintuitively helps get your body down to the right temperature. Uh, light is a massive one and um, darkness triggers the release of melatonin so lowering all lights um, in your house like an hour before you decide to go to sleep and obviously no iPad or, fo- or phone screens there was a frightening study that I saw something along the lines of uh, for every one hour you stare at a screen it prolongs delays the release of melatonin by four hours which is absolutely horrendous uh, tip number four don't stay in bed if you're struggling to sleep for more than 20 minutes 
get up and move around. And the reason for this is fascinating. It's because if you don't, the brain starts to associate your bed with somewhere that you're awake, not with where you're asleep. So go to a different room, read a book or something like that, and only come back to bed when you're feeling sleepy. Um, or meditating um, serves, serves a similar purpose that I've experimented with. And finally, and this is tough, ready for this one? No caffeine after noon and no alcohol in the evenings. No caffeine after noon. Now, regular listeners of this podcast will know I'm obsessed with a Mellow Birds coffee. Can't get enough of Mellow Birds, but I've cut down on my... Uh, intake of Mellow Birds coffee um, and I have it now earlier in the day because caffeine, even if you think you can sleep well after in uh, an intake of caffeine, your sleep isn't as deep. You're less likely to go into this stage four and REM sleep that's so, so, so important. And likewise with alcohol, people think al alcohol is great. A little nightcap helps you get to sleep, but alcohol is a sedative and sedation is not sleep. It doesn't help you get into this deeper sleep. So that's why sometimes even if you've slept for hours after a big session, you still tend to wake up knackered because you've not had this restorative sleep. So as I say, I could go on for hours and I will do when I, when I interview Mark Healy because Mark is someone who is obsessed with sleep as well and looking at practical ways to get students in his school sleeping better and getting parents better informed. But that is my obsession and probably the biggest and most important thing I've learned this year. So that is the end of the Slice of Advice podcast. I really hope you enjoyed that one. As I say, complete experiment for me this. I just thought it would be different to have people answering one question instead of uh, one person answering lots of different questions. Let me know if you like it, because if you do, I've got some ideas for other Slice of Advice episodes throughout, throughout, the, uh, throughout the year. Um, but I must give a flipping huge thanks to all the guests who gave up their time to do it. Hardly anybody said no, even though people were exam marking, uh, busy planning, busy with family, and just generally knackered at the end of the year. So, I mean, what an array of guests this was. I really hope you found it useful and thank you to all those people who, who took part and thank you to you the loyal listener and um, if you're listening to this uh when i'm recording it which is kind of summer 2018 just before the holidays i hope you've had a good year and i hope you managed to get a decent rest over the holidays and recharge perhaps get some sleep um, and I will be back with some fresh episodes next year. I'm dead, dead excited about where, where the podcast's going. Um, I've got ideas for Slice of Advice. I'm thinking of launching a book club. Tons and tons of stuff. So if you can help spread the word about this podcast, either by reviewing it on iTunes or just letting people know, both maths and non-maths colleagues, I'd really appreciate it. But thank you so much for listening. I love doing these and it makes my day that other people find these useful as well. You take care of yourselves and I will see you in the new year. Bye for now. Thank you.